Guys Uncensored, where we explore a lot more than just Disney. This is episode 105, recorded on March 22nd, 2021. We're your host, Drew and Bub. On tonight's episode, we're reaching into our Rolodex of guests and welcoming a new friend to the show, Bill Timoney, to his first ever Disney Guys Uncensored experience. Before we get there, though, guys, do you know what season it is, Drew? Tax season, Drew. Well, at tax season, my wife's an accountant. Of course, I know. I know you that. should have known it was tax season. You know what that means? That quite uh, a few Americans have some extra cash in their pocket this week. Yeah, I see. And what should they this. do with that cash, Drew? Uh, I think I think they should head over to Patreon. Uh, I, to get. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they should head over to the Disney Guys Uncensored official sponsor, Wish Upon Magic, an Etsy store specializing in magical keychains, water-resistant stickers, Mickey ears, and fluffy handmade home goods. If you mention the Disney Guys Uncensored at checkout, you'll receive a magical freebie. Wish Upon Magic's in-stock items change weekly. So what are you waiting for? Head over to Wish Upon Magic on Etsy, where portions of every purchase go to the Make-A-Wish Foundation to help spread the magic. And while you're there, give them a follow on Instagram at Wish Upon Magic, or visit their website at www.wishuponmagic.com. Absolutely, Bob. And if you have any leftover coins there, head over to Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the Disney Guys Uncensored, where you can get access for as little $2 a month to our amazing series that we just wrapped up with WandaVision, where we broke down every episode. It was an absolute blast. Uh, we had a ton of fun doing that, me, uh, myself, Tim, and Bob, as well as other fun stuff that we're throwing out there. It also gives you access to our private chat that, uh, you know, is always there to talk and, and throw comments and questions to us. Um, but, Bob, did you know this week is uh, time to celebrate? Because it is officially the Disney Guys Uncensored birthday. We have hit two years uh, in the making. How does it feel? I mean, I, I tried to quit this morning, and you talked me out of it. So <laughs> That's fair. You, you try to quit. You try to quit every week. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know... <laughs> It, it, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a lot, guys. It, it is a lot. We've hit 105 consecutive weeks without missing one episode. Uh, we're here giving you guys content. We do this because we love it, or else we w- we wouldn't be here. It's simple as that. Uh, and we're here especially because we get the opportunity to sit down uh, with with some amazing people like we are tonight. Um, and without really further ado, I don't want to keep them waiting any longer. Bob, who is joining us for this amazing episode this evening? Oh, that is Mr. Bill Timoney. And I'm sure some of you are saying, "Who?" I mean, because I'll be honest, I you, you you may not you may not know him, but I think you know his work. 
Yeah. You definitely know his work. So let's give you a little bit of background about Bill before we bring him on to the uh, official show here. Uh, he's a titan of entertainment, folks. A man who has who has inspired generations of fans. A consummate professional who always recognizes his roots. Having graduated from Seton Hall University, he frequently influences and guides the young minds of the school's calm arts students. He instills wisdom and has a very grounded take on life and acting. And before we get to his work, I would like to share a couple of his own words with you as a, I think, formal introduction. Uh, Bill once said to a class, I believe, celebrity is an illusion. If you are chasing fame, then don't become an actor. The only reason to become an actor is if you are fascinated by the craft of it. Become an actor to become an actor, not to become a star. And I found this one to be very poignant for a lot of things other than acting. Our profession is misnamed. We should not be called actors. Instead, we should be called auditioners. Booking a job is the vacation. The work is the audition process. Understanding that process, learning how not to take rejection personally, is the absolutely single most important skill an actor must cultivate in order to survive and thrive in this business. And working not in acting, but working in manufacturing, Drew, like we do, I think that last bit there where... People are going to get rejected in every line of work, but you can't take it personally. You need to be able to survive in that environment. Uh, very profound words from our very special guest tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to welcome Mr. Bill Timoney to the show. And Bill, how are you this evening? I'm well, Bob, and you're well, too. And so are you, Drew. God, Thanks. you guys are really good at what you do. This <laughs> is fun. This is a pleasure. Yeah. And that actually sounded like me. I recognize those quotes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can yep. I tell so you? Can I yeah. tell you where I learned that lesson? Yeah. I started my, uh, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I'm speaking to you right now from uh, my home down the Jersey shore. Uh, but I'm from Northern New Jersey and I went to college like any good second son of an Irish mm -hmm. Catholic family where my older brother was going, which was Fairfield mm -hmm. University. Mm -hmm. And being the film guy, the cinemaniac that I am, mm -hmm. I very quickly got involved in the, the film screening program on campus. And after we would screen the movies, take the tickets, blah, 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 uh, me and the guys would end up uh, at the pub. There was an actual campus pub. This is the late 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, the mid 70s. And uh, we get in a booth and we'd order pitchers of beer and maybe whatever, cheese fries, whatever. And we talked, Fairfield's in Connecticut, by the way. And we would talk about the movie we saw and what other movies we want to see and what movies we want to order, et cetera, et cetera. And we'd every now and then, you know, steal a glance at all the co-eds in the other booths of course none of us ever you know had the nerve to get up and speak <laughs> to a pretty girl we were only freshmen and sophomores at fairfield university but i clearly remember a guy can barely see his face never knew his name but at a certain point on friday nights or saturday nights in that campus pub he would show up and he would hit the booth with all the girls and kind of lean in and chat and chat. And, and then he would go over to another booth and the girls who he just left would laugh at him or something. And I mean, this was every week. And that guy went from booth to booth. If there were no guys sitting with the girls, this guy, boom, right to that booth, right to that table that chat up the girls. And it might take an hour. It might take two hours. 
But that guy never left alone. And he didn't care about the 20 young women who laughed at him. He only cared about the one who left with him. Wow. Now, let me... Let, let me relate it to what I do for a living. A couple of years ago, three or four years ago, I got an audition for the NBC show, The Blacklist. Okay. Yep. Familiar. Uh, had a good audition. Didn't get the role. But a few weeks later, the casting office called me back for another role on another episode of the show. Now, you've, I've been around long enough to finally have released myself from waiting for the phone to ring after my first audition. You've got to leave it alone. You've got to just walk away from it the moment you finish your audition. It's like it didn't happen. And for the blacklist, the victory you have, uh, because there's so much an actor cannot control. But actors assume if they didn't get it, it was their fault. And if you go 0 for 5 or 0 for 6, you think it's the universe telling you to give up and move back to Iowa and help Grams in the pharmacy. But now, the age I'm at, I did my audition. A couple weeks later, they called me back for another role, another episode of the same show. That was my victory. That told me that the casting office and the producers liked what I did, felt that I was right for their show, that I could compete at their level. Just wasn't, there was somebody who was more right for that part. Could be height, could be ethnicity, whatever, doesn't matter. And then I went in, auditioned again. And the next season, I got called in again got called in again. And last year, last January, I booked a role, a guest spot on an episode of The Blacklist. And I got a great scene with James Bader. Oh, brilliant scene. I know the exact scene and you know the exact scene you're talking about in the restroom. uh, Yeah. 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 Brilliant scene. That job, that role that I booked was the 16th role i had auditioned for on the blacklist that was season seven and my first audition was season four so over over four seasons they auditioned me for 15 other roles before and sometimes i got callbacks yep and went to the producers and never once and i'm if it sounds like i'm bragging now it's only because in stark relief earlier in my life i was the exact opposite yeah what what am I doing wrong? How come that just hire me? Damn it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I told my agent that that was my thing. Every time they call me back, I celebrated the victory. Yeah. It was like getting the job, getting another audition for that show meant it was just a matter of time. And my agent said, would you please tell the rest of my clients? That's how it works. Right. <laughs> yeah. You did something wrong. If they never call you back for that show. Right. You know, it didn't matter that it was 16 roles over four years before I, they found something for me. Mm-hmm. I knew after like the third or fourth audition, it was a matter of time before I got on that show. And yeah. by the way, the role I finally got was the, for me, it was the best of all those roles I had auditioned for. Yeah. That's awesome. No, no that, that's great. a great story, Bill. I think absolutely. I'll tell you what, Drew, I don't know if you've seen the scene. The scene is just, it just. I have not. No. Great now, stuff. But now I'm curious. I'll tell you what though. Blacklist, one of those shows, low key great. Low key yeah. great show. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. and so now that we know, go ahead. great crew, yep, really cool crew, starting with James on down. You know, mm-hmm. just awesome. Unfortunately, I was working with uh, Clark Middleton as well. I did a nice scene with James, but I also had some a lot of um, uh, action with Clark, who passed away 
yeah. late last year. And he was fantastic as well. I mean, and he was an old movie guy. Yeah. So, so Clark, myself, and the fellow who played Big Ed, the guy with the the used car dealer, yep. sat in our in our holding area and just talked old time movie trivia, yeah. just almost until the cameras rolled. So, yeah. cool guys. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. I think now that we know a little bit about Bill, we can expand. Perhaps yes. you know Bill from The Irishman. And if you didn't know, his scene with De Niro was improvised. And uh, that, that's got to be something. Maybe you recall his work from his time uh, in the theater on Broadway with Brian Cranston on the network. Um, maybe you even recognize him from one of his earliest roles as Alfred Vanderpool on All My Children. And ironically, a story to tell in a few minutes inspired Boys to Men in some odd way as well. Which is, uh, which is, I can't wait to hear that story. <laughs> and conceivably, you do know him as well from countless credits, Bill, uh, of anime and, and and language conversion and stuff like that. Uh, Cowboy Bebop, Digimon, Pokemon, Battle Athletes. Uh, again, you may not know Bill, but you certainly know his work. And we hope over the next hour plus, you get to know Bill the man. Because I'll tell you from the short time that we've spent with Bill, he is an interesting, interesting cat. Uh, we'll touch on his love of Dr. Sin, the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, and maybe you guys know about that, but you will know soon enough. Um, and maybe we'll even talk voiceover work on Mission to Mars Drew if we're up for it. Yes, It's yep. a long episode. It's a big episode. I'm excited for it. Broadway, off-Broadway, video game work, you name it. Bill's done it. Drew, let's get right to it. Let's, let's open up the floor to questions. Bill, what was your childhood like? Because your adult life here from just the credits alone has been extraordinary. You've been everywhere. You've done a lot of things. You've lived a charmed life in <laughs> the sense, in, in the sense of, uh, you know, charmed life in the sense of you've gotten work and you just obviously said 16 times to get the role you got on blacklist. So maybe it wasn't as charmed, right. but to be sharing a scene with De Niro and Scorsese and that's improvised and, for you to be trusted in that type of role, that's got it means that you're a, a generational talent in that instance, that somebody trusts you in that position. So have you always been this way? Uh, no. Early in my life, I, in my professional life, um, I didn't know how to conduct business, mm -hmm. and I took things personally. Mm -hmm. and, and both of those, th that was a mistake. Um, I've since learned both those lessons. I just learned them slower than, than I should have. Let me give you the... Um, the uh, the allegory, if you will, okay. for my life. It's the early '90s. Um, I had a best bud who was the star of a soap opera, Loving. Uh, in fact, I had two best friends from Loving. In 1983, I became good pals with a guy named Perry Stevens, who played the young hero, and another guy from the original cast uh, named Brian Cranston. Uh, Cranston was fired after less than a year. Uh, and Perry was, was the guy, regular guy. Mm -hmm. Perry was perfect soap opera leading man. Look, Brian was a little more character. -y. And I was a character I was playing on, on the show I was on mm -hmm. and come the early nineties. Uh, Perry and I had a nightclub act. He started, he had seen me do stand up. He asked me to introduce him on, in, when he was doing cabaret. And pretty soon we had a sort of a Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis routine and, we would do duets together and we'd ask uh, soap opera actresses to be our third. And we ended up playing like, in Europe. We played in Hawaii. You know, we, we, we had this running gig at a, at a piano bar in Manhattan for a couple of years. And one night we were out together. Me, my date at the time, Perry, 
his girlfriend at the time, who was on the soap opera Ryan's Hope, mm-hmm. and her roommate, who was on the soap opera Ryan's Hope, named Yasmeen Bleeth, and her date at the time, who was a guy who had just been fired from Ryan's Hope, named Luke Perry. So the three of the six of us went to this place on Central Park South called Serendipity, which was just ice cream. Mm-hmm. And uh, interesting, Nancy Vallon was the name of the other actress. And interesting that both she and Yasmin ended up on Baywatch for a time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Yasmin's pounding down the ice cream. And as we were leaving, Luke, Luke had an incredible physicality. He was, he was scrawny. He was light. Like we walked mm-hmm. under one of those construction, you know, um, mm-hmm. over things. And he would just jump up and grab the bar and swing up and hook his knees around it and do a twirl and come down. And now we're in Central Park South at Columbus Circle. And now we walked in a little bit, a beautiful night. And there's this enormous sycamore tree with this really enormous uh, branch hanging out. And impulsively, Luke, Yasmin's his girlfriend, we're all on a sugar high. Luke goes running full speed at this tree. (laughs) And just before he's going to hit it, he hits the trunk of the tree with the sole of his foot and the next sole of his foot and the next sole. And then he grabs that enormous branch and he swings around and now he's standing on the branch. The guy (laughs) ran up the tree trunk. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, And to see Nancy and Yasmin and my date react the way they reacted was very impressive and then very horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what are me and Perry going to do? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, how do you follow that up? Well, tough Perry, yep. much taller, much broad again. Ultimate soap hunk. If you look mm-hmm. him up, you'll see. Perry looked at that branch and he started walking away from the tree trunk to where the branch got thinner and thinner and a little bit lower. And he was able to reach up and put his hand on that branch. And with his feet never leaving the ground, he sort of hand, hand, hand towards the trunk until he got close enough to the trunk and the branch had gotten thicker. The branch sort of lifted him up. And he did the next, the, like the last half dozen that way and just by force of himself. And then boom, and he was up. And now the two of them are standing on the, <laughs> and I'm standing there with the three girls <laughs> and they all looked at me. Yeah. <laughs> now you guys, I'm sure, you know what Tom Hanks knew when he, at the Academy Awards one night said, many people debate the greatest film ever made is malt is, uh, is Citizen Kane, it's Gone with the Wind, it's Vertigo. And Tom Hanks said, but I know what most boys know, that the greatest movie ever made is Jason and the Argonauts. Yep. And I'm going to take this when they got Ray Harryhausen got a, you know, a lifetime mm-hmm. achievement Academy Award. Yep. So I went to the scene in my mind of Helias uh, showing up late to audition to get on the Argo. Hercules, it occurs to me that if I can beat you in something, that they'll take me on. You remember the scene? Yep. They they take the discs. Yep. Hercules throws the disc out to to the rock that no one's ever reached, and it hits yep. the rock. And of course, Elias says, "And is the point to hit it or go past it?" And he goes, "You're lucky if you get it halfway." 
Yep. Elias thinks, throws it like a frisbee, and it skips, 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 and hits. Yep. I walked up to the trunk. I put my right arm around the trunk. I put my left arm on the trunk. I put my right knee up against it. I put my left knee, the inside, up against it. And I squeezed with my knees. And it took me two minutes, <laughs> inching up, squeezing in on the inside of my knees, using those muscles. Yeah. But after two minutes, I was up there with those guys. That's right. I and couldn't that's... walk for two days. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the point of this allegory is it took me longer to get where they got. Yep. And it cost me more. <laughs> my groin <laughs> but but i got there yeah now of course i'm sad to say the epilogue of that is neither one of those guys are still yeah. with us yeah um uh, they both had well luke had an amazing career perry's career uh, peaked early unfortunately yeah. um but i had an awful lot of fun work, working with him oh. and he was a big part of opening doors for me yeah. the way brian has been able to we've always mm-hmm. you know um, you know, a quid pro quo in a way. We've always had friendships where we looked mm-hmm. for opportunities for each other. And early on in my career, I helped Brian get some work. Mm-hmm. So that has in more recent years, you know, swung the other way. And he's been very gracious about that. Yeah. He got me the audition for all the way. He got me the audition for network. Yeah, and then the awesome. director chose me to, I understudied him in network. I understudied the Howard Beale mad as hell role. Mm. The guy, the guy's a Scottish Irish field. <laughs> 212 performances, never missed a single performance. Unreal. It's unreal. Uh, uh, but great, I mean, great, great story. Great analogy. They like you said, Bill, that, and that's, that's stuff that I think I find fascinating that you're not going to read in any book or you're not going to find no. anywhere or, or anything like that. So, uh, those are great to hear. Well, I'm delighted that you guys like just, just, this is sort of my, you know, I, I do coaching of other actors on the side. Mm-hmm. And what, what I try to impart to younger people now is, is the, what I call the two eyes. You have two eyes, and that's how you should be going through life, is searching for those two eyes. And those two eyes are insight and inspiration. Insight mm-hmm. is, how does this work? How can I get what I want? Where do I have to go? Why is da-da-da? That's your insight, how things work. And the inspiration is, how do I keep going? Which, and as an actor, if you don't hit it, early because you look perfect on camera you know it's not going to necessarily be easy and you always need to get inspiration to keep you going yeah that's a great way to look that's at true. it no that's absolutely true yeah that's it's fair it's funny it's not necessarily funny but so my <laughs> wife and i <laughs> so so my wife and i we watch riverdale for whatever reason it's a fine show on the cw and sure. luke perry well, was was Fred Andrews in the show? It's based on the Archie mm-hmm. comics, and and how brilliant was that? Yeah. So he went, let me take the old Archie comics, yeah, make it Buffy the Vampire type heavy. Yep, yeah. How brilliant was it? Was that? brilliant. Yeah, it was and and he was great. He was the heart and soul of that show, and, mm-hmm. and that's no disrespect to the kids, KJ Appa and 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 the, the girls, Camilla Mendez, I think somebody. And they're fine actors and actresses. They are, but having a guy like Luke Perry on that show was the heart and soul of that program. And man, they did a tribute episode to 
Fred. I remember that, yeah. To Fred right. Andrews, and it was more a tribute to Luke Perry, and it was beautiful, and it was it was a great episode, and it's mm. it's interesting that you that you happen the first question off the bat, you have a story about Luke Perry. It's <laughs> well, let me it's give you one, let me give you the, the the last one then. Yeah. I'm living in L.A. I turned forty. My career in New York had hit rock bottom, uh, so I figure it's about time. I, Cranston was always trying to get me out to L.A., so I move out to L.A. Got a tiny little apartment, a tiny studio the size of a car parking space uh, in, in Venice Beach, which at that time, if you were looking for trouble, Venice Beach was a real easy place to find it. Um, and I, a guy, uh, my mom uh, spoke to a parish priest from my boyhood mm-hmm. who said, how's Bill doing? How's his acting career going? And she said, well, you know, it's, he's out in L.A., but it's been tough. No. And he said, well, I know a guy. Yeah, give, give me his number and I'll have this guy call him. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy turned out to be John Wells, <laughs> one of the creators of ER and so many yeah. amazing, amazing. Quite a friend to have, quite a yeah. friend. And and um, he had me up to the, I guess it was the twenty, the Fox lot, mm-hmm. and we had a, a quick meeting. Mm-hmm. And he was working on something, and and he gave me a bit, uh, and that meant everything to me. That. Yeah me going through a very dark time in my life where mm-hmm. all I had was the occasional anime dubbing gig yep. and I was managing my apartment building and it was this really tough building calling mm-hmm. the place on Saturday morning because one of my tenants down the hall OD'd fatally you know it yeah. was not the, the, yeah. the if I had painted a picture of 20 of what I'd be doing at 40 this was not it yeah, correct and so John had me on he was shooting a pilot for I forget which network mm-hmm. and it was Luke's show Mm-hmm. Luke was, was starve it, uh, and to put it in the proper timeline, it was kind of a Jerry Maguire, mm-hmm. where Luke was a sports agent, mm-hmm. but he was also a practicing attorney. Uh, so there was a lot in court, mm-hmm. and Luke was the lead, and the head of the firm, the sports agency law firm, mm-hmm. was Ken Howard. Okay, and I forget who the female lead was. She might have been somebody new, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe she went on somewhere. No, um, and uh, it never got picked up. So it's not anywhere on any IMDb mm-hmm. page or anything like that. But John gave me a part. It was a big court scene where Luke had this multi-page summation, mm-hmm. one giant monologue. And the only other line in the whole scene was me as the bailiff, all rise for his honor, Eric Loisel. Mm-hmm. That was the entire line. Yeah. And uh, I showed up. It was dark. It was that early. Mm-hmm. I'm looking. I hadn't seen Luke in ages. That that thing mm-hmm. with the tree was the last time I'd seen him. You know, we weren't like we knew each other through Perry and, and yep. girlfriends. It's not like we had each other's numbers or anything. Right. And sure enough, I parked the car and I start walking. And who do I cr- cross paths immediately? Yeah. I go, "Hey, Luke!" And he looked up and went, "Morning, how are you?" <laughs> you I'm a tree guy. He's <laughs> not going to remember you when I knew him. And when I knew him, he was a guy who had just been fired from his second soap. He had done Loving in Another World and been fired. And he was talking about moving to L.A. Yep. And when he got out to L.A., yep. he got a job on the road department in L.A. County. Yep. And then a year later, when he got on Beverly Hills 90210, the high school they were filming at, yep. as they pulled up and there's the speed bumps in the parking lot, Luke went, I built that. <laughs> Only a year earlier, he was yep. building the speed bumps in the parking lot of the high school. And now here he is, the big TV star. And now this is several years after that. And I'm like, well, he wouldn't. Right. That was an idiot. That was so stupid to think that he might know me, you know, on site, you know. Yeah. So we start shooting the scene. 
and we do my, do my thing and he does a couple of takes and you know there's a break and you turn the, mm. the room around for the cameras and suddenly he's standing up next to me because I'm sitting at my thing because I'm going to stand up when the judge comes in I'm going to make everybody come up you, I mean you know the scene there's one line yeah. Yeah. and suddenly I look up and Luke's standing over me and he goes what you're not going to say hi <laughs> <laughs> and now uh, I have to do the whole Luke I didn't want to bother you I didn't know if you <laughs> I completely let him go from the morning thing yeah, in, yeah. In the parking area yep. and he might not have put it together at all or I maybe half asleep maybe or, he yeah. finally did and went oh my gosh Bill Timoney yeah we had a great chat we had a great chat yeah that's true. and then he went and because they're sitting at the table right behind me as the bailiff or whatever I am yep. and I can hear I'm not supposed to but I can hear the young lady who's playing the female lead. Luke sat down and she turned to him and she says, why are you talking to that guy? Yeah. Meaning, you know, no, you're right. You're, I'm a peon. I've, I've only yeah. got one line and, and, and they're the stars. And yeah. she had it that, you know, she was a 20 something, very pretty yeah. young actress. and had this meaning thing. Yeah. You know, why are you talking to that guy? Yeah. I heard Luke's response. He said, he knows where I came from. Yeah. That's the last that was the last time I ever saw him. Yeah, well, it's yeah. sad, but that, that that that's still a cool story, cool memory, absolutely. Um, so, f- for me, for you, did you have a favorite medium as you came along? Do you prefer do you prefer the stand up stage? Do you prefer the improv? Do you prefer television and the film productions? Do you prefer the theater or the voice acting? What for you? What was your favorite? Wow. Yeah, you know. My resume is either a testament to my versatility oh, absolutely. Or, or, or evidence of undiagnosed ADD. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, when I'm a little kid yeah. in the sixties growing up on creature features and chiller theater yeah, and my folks gave me a super eight camera yeah. and I'm in the backyard or down the woods with the guys and I'm making my monster movies and my army movies. Awesome. I was going to be a film director. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I saw some Broadway shows, and I loved that. But I had, I had a very bad stutter when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I never talked. Mm-hmm. But I loved movies. And I'd be in the basement after we shoot the movies. I'm editing the movies, and I'm showing movies. And you know, I love that stuff. So I was going to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. The, only, the only successful directors I could name as a kid were, were actors first. So I thought, oh, I'll become a famous actor, and then I'll become a mm-hmm. famous um, and then in high school, I, I did a show I did a, and I was very young looking for my age mm-hmm. uh, at 18. I looked 12, yep. but I did these plays, these high school musicals mm-hmm. and girls wanted to talk to me and that had never happened to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever had a conversation with a girl before I did a show. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I'm sticking with this. <laughs> That's right. I, I love live theater. Mm-hmm. Late in my life, having made it to Broadway now twice, and both yep. in sold out hits, it's an right. extraordinary experience. Amazing. Love working. Prime. I loved. I loved my job on All My Children, man. Yeah, if they had wanted me to. If they had made a big, bigger thing out of my role, I would have stayed. I love. Yeah. I love doing stand up. Um, yeah. uh, I wasn't messed up enough. I, I did. Uh, yeah, seems right. Hundred <laughs> percent. But yeah. you know, afterwards they're all at the bar and. I mean, the really good stand-ups were people who were working stuff out, and they were not pleasant company. Yeah, and I just, yeah. at the time, I just didn't have enough stuff to work out. Now, I, I certainly do. 
but not back then. Um, but, you know, as a kid, my heroes are Bugs Bunny and Boris Karloff. Uh, so to get a chance to work in animation mm-hmm. is, is a joy. Everything I've done, guys, I really like doing. Mm-hmm. It's just like you've, you've had to explain to our listeners, you know, people don't know who I am. You know, people who watched all my children in the 80s. Right. You know, Alfred and the whole boys to men. Mm-hmm. Thing. Yep. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I had a fun little thing on the sci-fi channel a couple years ago on uh, 12 monkeys. So yep, maybe, you did. Maybe yep. some hardcore sci-fi people might know that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the anime crowd certainly knows me because I got a, I'm a, yep. I've voiced a couple of really popular mm-hmm. titles. Yep. But, you know, uh, nobody goes. You know, listen, when France and I became friends in 83, yep. we do our on lunch breaks. We go out to Central Park with a wiffle ball and a wiffle bat. No. And we imitate everybody's stances. Here's your Stremsky stance. Here's Mickey Mantle's stance. You know, and we would talk about what we we're going to do with our careers, going from daytime to prime time to features to writing mm-hmm. and directing. Da, da, da. He has done all of that and more, yeah. and I've done a fraction of that. And with that comes, you know, finances. I've never done anything because of money, and as a result, I've never really had a lot of money, but I've had a lot of fun. So I guess your answer is yes. Yeah. Whatever opportunity I got, I loved it. It's a blast. Yeah. Excellent. That's awesome. Excellent stuff. And I think that goes to your character, Bill, and and kind of the quotes that Bob read earlier. Uh, And and I think that just makes it so much more special, right? When when you're doing something that you love and you enjoy and you have the opportunity to kind of float around in those positions. Uh, You know, the the film business is not an easy business, like like you've said, and you know much more than I do about that. But um, the opportunities that you get presented and that one callback that you do get makes it worth that while. So um, it's awesome to hear it from that side of the fence. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. certainly. So there's there's kind of a two part question. And okay. I think we've touched on your giving advice and how you coach people. And you've already mentioned the two eyes. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received about acting or performing regarding the business? And what is the best piece of advice? And, and maybe the two eyes is what you've given the best piece of advice that you've given regarding. The well, that's business. definitely the one I've given. That's, that's the culmination of my 40 years yeah. in the yep. business. But asking me the best piece I've heard is kind of like asking me what's my favorite horror film because all I see are logs in a log jam yeah. and I start stuttering again and smoke starts coming out because um, <laughs> I collect this stuff. Yeah. I collect ex- actors' experiences, writers, directors, producers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite pieces is something Marlon Brando said, not to me, but Brando <laughs> said, just because they say action doesn't yeah. mean you have to do anything. Which uh, I, I mean, brilliant. The craft, yeah. I think that's a great piece of yeah. advice. Brilliant. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's great. That's fantastic stuff. So I guess last question for me before I kind of let Drew open the floor to Drew a little bit is, I have did to you? I have to talk yeah, about. I'm sorry. It's, it's in his contract. <laughs> I don't know if you told me. <laughs> so, so what is your favorite voice that you've ever portrayed? Maybe it's the same thing as the horror film Log Jam. Do you have a favorite voice that you've done, whether it's an anime or whether it's in a video game? Is there a favorite voice you've done? I, I have found a way to channel my, all my children character, Alfred Vanderpool, in some of my different anime jobs. Now, uh, Parn in Record of Lotus War is what I'm best known for. And I really enjoyed that because he was drawn kind of like the way I looked when I was in high school and college. 
Uh, so I would just lighten my voice and go back to that period of my life. Uh, but Madarame in Genshigen, which is a very good series, um, and Madarame is sort of very much Alfred. Up, Alfred was very uptight. He, he was very smart, but he did not know how to speak to girls. Um, and I was able to channel that with Madarame. So he was a lot of fun. Um, I can't say favorite because I mix them up. I I like to imitate others, and like I'll I'll mix imitations of one famous person and another in order to come up with with the voice I have. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that the very first job I did as a voice actor, like so many other things in this business, I got this job because I was willing to do something nobody else would do. It was the first anime of its kind, and it was a midnight film, and it was not for children. Absolutely not for children. <laughs> and I got to say, now they put on more reverb, but at least this was my part of it. I got to say the line, <sighs> A virgin, what a special treat. <laughs> I don't know if that's my favorite, but <laughs> that was how I got into the voice acting business. So that has resonated with me excellent that's cool that's yeah. awesome uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing something now that uh is going to drop next week awesome it's Did on share it? it's a feature it's a feature animated mm-hmm. feature from russia okay. uh but it was prelay but by that i mean two kinds of voices j- just in case you're not sure mm-hmm. uh you get something that's already done animation or live action it already exists mm-hmm. and you're going to force English language on a different language. They erase mm-hmm. the audio track of the previous actors in Utah. That's dubbing. Square peg into round hole. Um, that's what I do on Pokemon. I've done all kinds of roles on Pokemon over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's done in Japanese. But mm-hmm. Prelay is when they have the actors come in and record it first. And then the animators go off and draw to what has been recorded. The most famous example, of course, is Robin Williams as the genie in Aladdin. But all those Pixar's, all those Disney's, they're recorded first and drawn after. And that's a step up from dubbing. Yeah. Uh, my wife has one of the lead roles. George has one of the lead roles in this new thing that's dropping called uh, Secret Magic Control Agency. It's okay. the Hansel and Gretel story as if Hansel and Gretel were secret agents trying to control uh, evil magic from good magic. Uh, it's very funny. It's for kids, but there's an awful lot of grown-up humor to keep mm-hmm. up. Yep. And Georgette uh, plays uh, Agent Stepmother, which okay. is basically Judy Dench as M. And she's Excellent. Very, very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do, I do the in the climactic wedding uh, scene at the end of the film. I'm the priest, mm-hmm. which is I mix uh, Peter Cook in uh, Princess Bride. Okay. Oh, yep. And wrote, uh, Norman Bird in the Wrong Box, which is okay. one of my all-time favorite films. Michael Caine, Peter Sellers, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, and mm-hmm. Norman Bird is doing the eulogy at the at the graveside, and you know gets it all wrong, kind of like Rowan Atkinson in Four Weddings and Funeral. Yep. Um, but I didn't do Rowan Atkinson. I did a, I did a bit of Peter Cook. I did a bit of Norman Bird, and I did a bit of uh, Russell Thorndike, okay. who is the voice. Oh, he's not the voice. He is the priest. In Olivier's film version of Hamlet, okay. when Ophelia's killed herself mm-hmm. and they're her in unconsecrated ground, and her brother 
Laertes says, after you know, it's a real quick ceremony. He says, "What ceremony else?" And the priest says, "What ceremony else?" And then, you know, and then of course Hamlet shows up and dives into yep. the. Yep. And here's your segue. Russell Thorndike was a wonderful character actor in England for many, many years. Olivier would use him then in uh, Richard III as another priest in that. Yep. Russell Thorndike was a member of his sister's company, Dame Sybil Thorndike, who was mm-hmm. one of the stage actresses of her time. And her brother had a very long, prolific career. He actually wrote his sister's biography. Mm-hmm. But he wrote a novel, too. Russell Thorndike is the author of Dr. Sin. Amazing. And here we go, kids. There it is. Yeah, it is. there it is. The moment he's been waiting for. That's right. Now, despite his illustrious career and all of the work that we've even touched on and things that we haven't touched on yet, you grew up around the time or around the television with the wonderful world of Disney. I so did. I so did. So I'm I'm 63. I'm born in 58. Yep. So 61, 62, 63, I remember where I was when the news of President Kennedy's assassination broke. Um, but I have memories even before 63. Yep. And yeah, we we lived for the wonderful world of Disney on Sunday nights on NBC, especially when it was in color. Yeah. And dad was able to get us a, a color TV. Um, and, you know, we lived in you know the New York City metro market. So we had the three networks and the three locals. And I would put a pillow under my knees because even back then I was inches from that big TV and I wanted to constantly see what was on everything. But Disney, especially Zorro, yeah. which I remember so clearly and the song, even today out of nowhere, I'll be driving and I'll start going Zorro, 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 Zorro. Yeah, yep. But even more so. Scarecrow, Scarecrow. Oh yeah. Yeah. All the time when that thing came on. Yeah. And uh, I remember as a little, little kid, Babes in Toyland. I think my mom gave us like a coloring book, a souvenir book of Babes yeah. in Toyland. I had no idea it was one of Disney's great disasters. Yeah. We just knew that. It, and I didn't know Annette Funicello from Tommy Kirk from, from Ray Bolger. It was right. just really exciting for a little kid. Yep. Scarecrow. And I mean, Patrick McGowan. Yeah. It's 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 a great program. It's and the song, the song, and that cackling laugh and the the the, the framing of it. Yeah. Oh my god! Oh my god! Who who directed Scarecrow? Uh, Chaffee. It Wait. could be. It could be. I um. John Chaffee, who who directed Jason and York? Be. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, wow. And Don Chaffee, who directed my favorite live-action Disney film, The Three Lives of Thomasina. Deep cut right there. Deep cut. That's it's deep. Deep cut. And it's it's funny. It's So a few years ago, Disney released uh, this Walt Disney Treasures series with Leonard Maltin doing an introduction on them. Oh, cool. And th- there's a DVD copy of Dr. Sin. And I will tell you, that's the reason I even know it exists. And I own it. And... I'll tell you, my kids, for whatever reason, love Follow Me Boys, for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. that song, similar to your triggers with Dr. Sin, I'll be driving, follow me, boys, follow me. And it's just, it's <laughs> insane. And it's just, so it's funny because Disney itself, and have you ever worked with Disney proper live action stuff for? Well, there, well, there was a time that uh, that Disney owned ABC. 
Yeah, and right. All my children was ABC, so right. so there was some connection there. But yeah. I don't. And now and now Disney owns Pokemon. Yeah, so Disney owns everything. There. But really, the only Disney film I've done as an actor was Mission to Mars. And I saw right. it you know, as a Brian De Palma film, and it doesn't really feel Disney. Maybe it feels a little Touchstone, back when Touchstone Yeah, started. yeah. Well, I stand by, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago, and I told these guys the best Disney film ever made was Tombstone, because it was, uh, it was a Bien Vista picture, and it was, right. it was a Hollywood Pictures yeah. film, and, and they laughed at me like I was crazy. I said, oh, Tombstone's a crew. One of my favorite Westerns of all time was Tombstone. I, I just, I'd put it top 10. I'd put it 9 or 10, but I'd make it top 10. Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, obviously, when you get into Stagecoach and, and some of the, the Magnificent Seven and, and the, oh, God, what the hell? There's one of them that's just... Oh God! Come back to me. I'll let you take <laughs> over. There's a western that I, I just I love. It's just, hey, give me one element of it, and I'll tell you what it is. Oh God! It's uh. Is the scene where a guy? No, it's got Jack Nicholson in it when he was real, real, real young. Sure, it's Ride the Whirlwind. Is it Ride the Whirlwind? Yes. <laughs> so that came on a two movie set with the shooting. Yeah. Uh, that Criterion put out and I Criterion's Western collection. If you're into Westerns or you probably know them all fantastic stuff was, on the Criterion it was the moment that his career changed. Yeah. Uh, the Philippines trip. If you know about that, the yep. Philippines trip uh, for, for the two movies for Robert Lippert are what changed him from being an eager young guy desperate to get in the movies. Mm -hmm. And when you see like his little bit in Ensign Pulver, the sequel to Mr. Roberts that nobody ever yeah. talked about. Um, or you know the notorious uh, Little Shop of Horrors. You see that, uh, or the terror. Oh my God, the terror, and oh my God, the Raven. You know the run water. Right. He comes back from the Philippines, making those two movies for Lippert, yeah. and he's figured it out. Yeah. And Monty Hellman was the director on them. Yeah. And on the way back, they put together that idea for those two movies: the shooting and Ride the yeah. Whirlwind that they shot back to back out in. Yeah. Uh, I think they shot them in the Mojave. Yeah. Uh, and that's what, and they become, they're actually both very well regarded in Europe. Yeah. And that's what really puts him on his path. Yeah. It's funny. I hold Jack in a very high regard, if I can call him Jack, if he listens to the program. I hold him very, <laughs> I hold him in very high regard in terms of, uh, in terms of his acting. I, I just, something about a good Jack role that I just love. But I, I think, not that I've taken enough of your time, but I, I think Drew's got some questions yeah. for you lined up. Maybe, uh, Maybe more theatrical questions, and then we can catch up on the other side with some other stuff. So, Drew, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, have the, I'll have the salmon, and if I could get that orange glaze that you had for us last Excellent. time. This time with pastrami rice, okay? Thanks. Now, Bob, I mean, it's not often where you're always my, my trivia guy, but next time I need a trivia partner. I might no, have this is your guy trivia. right here. Bill, Bill your... seems like the guy that could just uh, have a little bit of knowledge of everything. But, All right, know. may I tell you? Prior to the internet, 80s and 90s, those late night phone calls were never <laughs> drunk ex-girlfriends. Well, <laughs> usually they were guys like Cranston yeah. who were at a bar and somebody was going, this guy is telling me that there are three Magnificent Seven movies and I think there's four. <laughs> who's, who's right? You know, and, and I said, what's the bet? 10 bucks. Magnificent Seven, Return of the Seven, Guns of the Magnificent Seven, and the Magnificent Seven Ride. Yeah. The only one that was shot in the United States is the one that doesn't take place in the United States, and that's the final one. It's, yeah. it's supposed to look like a spaghetti western because of Lee Van Cleef is playing Chris now. Uh, 
uh, George George Kennedy and guns shot it in Spain, and the first two were shot in Mexico. <laughs> they see. see? <laughs> I used to get those calls all the time. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little about your theater career, um, Bill. And, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna I'm gonna start in 2010. And I know you had a lot more before, but but 2010 really jumped out to me. It seemed at like a big pivotal point in your theater career. And maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but um, three big things happened. Right in April, you had an off Broadway Soho Playhouse as a standby actor in the Irish Terse, which yep. really you ended up standing in a lot more, uh, which really gave you some recognition, which I believe led you to some other roles, which was in August. Uh, the Pitch and Palin part of the New York International Fringe Festival. But then in December, you had the opportunity to work with your lovely wife at the Arkansas Repertory Theater for an adaptation of a Christmas story. That must have been a blast. So, um, so, so I knew Georgette. Well, I didn't know Georgette. When I, tra- okay. I transferred from Fairfield after my sophomore year to Seton Hall because I started to get work. On, on the soap opera, All My Children. They started to bring me in for background extra work. I started getting commercials. And I thought I could live at home and cut a class at Seton Hall to go into audition, but I couldn't do that from Fairfield. So that was why I transferred schools. Okay. And there was an actress a year ahead of me there at the schools, at this school uh, who was a fiercely good actress, a frightening, frightening human being. But but on stage, she was fiercely honest. And, and I got cast opposite her in a bunch of shows. We did Jean Ennui's The Lark. She played Joan of Arc, and I played the Dauphin who fried her. Um, and working with her helped me transition from being a performer, like the high school musical energy, to being an actor who inhabits a role, who is not pushing it or mm. and performing and showing, but who is listening and reacting. And her kid sister, who was in high school at the time, used to come see the shows. So I would hear her name, but I don't think I ever met her. And then once I left Seton Hall and I got on all my children, uh, she was now at that college. And I'd go back to that college because I had friends who were still doing plays there as undergrads. And she'd be in them. And she was clearly the best actor, the best actor of anybody there. But we only had two conversations in 20 years. And then um, something happened. I came back in like 2000 and from L.A., and I did a show and ran into her and we had one of those, oh, it's you moments. We were married a year later wow. and uh, we've done seven equity productions together. I also awesome. brought her into dubbing and she's so good at anime that the producers started hiring her. Clients started hiring her instead of me. <laughs> so she's got a great voice thing going and very often I'd get to direct her if they were dubs that I was directing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say uh, she's in Picking Palin and we had a lot of fun in Picking Palin. Uh, which was about the four Republican operatives in a hotel room who were told by John McCain, find me a VP candidate. Mm-hmm. And it was just the four of them. And I played the guy who was behind this idea of this woman who was the governor of Alaska. And the other three are horrified about it, but I bowl them over and I'm really obnoxious and bad about it. And not surprising, the New York Post gave me a great write-up. Uh, but <laughs> then, yeah, we auditioned together for a Christmas story. There's two versions. There's a musical version and a non-musical. Okay. And, and we booked uh, Ralphie's parents. I played the old man uh, in the non-musical version. And yeah, that was a great time too. That's so fun. much fun. Love sharing the stage with Georgette. That's awesome. That, that That's amazing that you have the opportunity to do that. Uh, not many people can say that they get the, the opportunity to work with their wife and that they want to work with their wife. So Yeah, uh, I've, had, I've heard other people say that. They both said, oh, you guys work together? I'm like, well, yeah, that's why we got together. We want to be together. <laughs> 
so that in 2014 was another big year where you had the opportunity to work with a damn good friend, Brian Cranston, in All the Way, which was a two-time Tony Award-winning play. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most interesting part of this story is you played nine roles, Bill. Um, I mean, that, that, that's, that's amazing. I mean, you got to tell well, us about that. i got to tell you, Drew, I, I would love to sit back and keep quiet and listen to you puff. But the bottom line was, I mean, I said a word here. I said a line <laughs> there. All it was, I was just changing clothes. I'm a Secret Service agent here. I'm a congressman there. I'm a senator here. I'm the White House butler here. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reporter there. You know, it's just, it was just changing costumes more, more than anything. Well, but it's not. I shall let, let me tell you and your listeners, and especially Bob, <laughs> um, the most interesting part of that job for me is how I got that job. Okay. Brian called me. He said, um, I'm shooting the next to last episode of Breaking Bad. He was up in the snow above Albuquerque shooting. I remember snow that episode. Yep. Robert Foster. By the way, you know what Brian's first job was in this business? No. Please pick up his memoir, uh, A Life in Parts. I actually helped him uh, oh, yeah? certain things. Yeah. He oh, would call me and go, I, I, I want to do, do this chapter about my dad uh, writing. He was one of the screenwriters on The Beast with Five Fingers. And I would go, no, he's not. The Beast with Five Fingers starred Peter Laurie. Your dad was one of the co-writers of The Crawling Hand, which starred Peter Breck, Allison Hayes, and Alan Hill Jr. That's what, you know, so I would do that. I would, I would remind him of some of the smaller aspects of his life. And he said, he said uh, after this, it's all about movies. But the New York office of my agency uh, told me there's a play that I've been offered, and they think I should do it. I don't have time to read it. Please read it for me and let me know what you think. So he sent it to me. Three pages into the second act, I put down all the way and I called him and I said, you cannot say no to this play. He said, really? I said, you cannot say no to this play. About a week later, two weeks later, he'd finally wrapped the whole series and he called me and he went, you're absolutely right. I cannot say no to this play. So he accepted the job. Now that was in like February that year. Come May, uh, they're auditioning and he, he asked the director to audition me. And they do, but the only track that's available to me, they need a much older character actor, so I don't get it. And then in August, Brian calls me again. He goes, all right, I'm up here in Cambridge to do this play. I've made a big mistake, and I need your help. He said, I spent the summer promoting Breaking Bad and going down to Texas and meeting all of LBJ's old friends and getting the accent down, and I haven't learned the lines. It's Friday. We start rehearsals. On Tuesday, I don't, it's a three and a half hour play. I'm playing LBJ with these massive speeches, like, like soliloquies. I'm really screwed. Can you be up here tomorrow? They put me in a two bedroom condo at Harvard Yard. Uh, pack a bag. I'll pay you. Uh, help me learn these lines. So I took the job. And the first week was rapid fire fest. We block a scene. We run it. We move on. Block a scene. And da, 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 da. And by the time they reach Sunday, we're going to run all the first act. We never go back. We don't go back until Sunday. Now, what had Brian been doing for the past five years? <laughs> He's been learning half a page of dialogue, right? Go over the night before, learn it in the makeup chair that morning. 
Yep. You know, when you do TV, especially when you have the character down, mm. you know, it's, there are, you know, there are ways to learn fast. And he was overwhelmed and he was, he was actually terrified. The only time I've ever seen him scared was when his wife gave birth to their child and the baby came home several weeks before Robin did because she had a very difficult birth and it was touch and go there for a while. Otherwise, he's a very confident guy. And now we go with all the way here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Saturday, he tells me, I'm having these dreams, these nightmares, these fantasies. I got to get out of here. I'm going to fall flat on my face here. And there were Breaking Bad fans everywhere. He'd go near the theater and they were, they're standing in the bushes coming out to get him to sign swag, you know? Yeah. They don't want his autograph. They want to make money off him. Yeah. He says, I'm having this fantasy of one of them coming out and, you know, Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerriganing me, which would be great because then I, I could get out of the show without quitting and looking bad. <laughs> and then I thought, no, no. And he's telling me this as we're walking to the theater that first Saturday. And then I thought, no, I'll have Billy do it. Billy will know how to hit me just enough that I, <laughs> I can graciously get out of the show without really hurting me long term. And I said, did you work out the part where Billy evades Justin? <laughs> Which he had not. Uh, so we go Sunday for the run through of the first act. And now we're going to do the next week. We're going to do the second act. And then the week after that, we got audiences. We're never going back to do things. Massive monologues after monologues. And when he goes to rehearsal, he has scripts coming in and he's having me uh, – look at the scripts and give him my opinion. That's when Trumbo came in. Okay. He came back from rehearsal one day and I went, you can't say no to this. He went again. I said, I'm telling you, <laughs> Trumbo is it. Yep. Yep. Uh, and he got his Oscar nomination for it. Yep. Anyway, Sunday morning, we're walking to the theater for the run through of act one. And he goes, we're getting out of here, but I can't have the papers say that I quit. But tomorrow we're going to be back with our wives. So I've worked out what I'm going to say. I'm going to tell them, well, I needed a, another week, and they're going to counter with, well, we've already sold the preview audience tickets. We can't reimburse them. So I will have given them an out. I, I make it their choice. It was interesting listening to him work, his machinations yeah. of how he's going to quit but not make it look like it's his fault, you know, because mm. uh, so, it would hurt his reputation. Yeah. Creative differences, I think it's referred to in the trades, <laughs> uh, artistic differences. Yeah. Uh, so he goes. So he goes through it with me, and he goes, before we start, Find Robert, find Bill, the playwright, the director. Tell him I want to meet him a half hour after we wrap today at such and such a place. I said, sure. He goes, don't tell him what I want to talk to us. Of course not. Mm. So Brian goes backstage, he got in costume. I see the playwright. I see the director, Bob, uh, Robert, Bill. Uh, Brian would like to know if you guys could meet him a half hour after we wrap here at the fountain over there. Da, da, da. They, go, they go, oh, sure. Okay, Bill, fine. And I go, okay, he's going to quit the show. <laughs> And they both go white. And I go, here's what he's going to say. So prepare your answers now to talk him out of it. Yeah. And sure enough, they never gave me up. They never looked at me. And we still to this day have never talked about it. And by the way, Brian still doesn't know I did this. Well, well let's thank God Brian doesn't listen to they us. Had, <laughs> they had him neutralized. They were like, well, it's, it's about the lines. And they go, Brian. You should hear what everybody around here is saying. 
they're all stunned. They thought you were a TV actor who wouldn't be able to. Said you are. We've got an opening night not knowing if our leading man was going to remember any of his lines. And you're yeah. so amazing. We see how hard you're working with Bill during the breaks. And you're yeah. it's so they they neutralized him. And we're Art, walking yeah. back to the apartment. And he goes, "We're going to have to stay. <laughs> you're, you're going to have to go through with this." Yeah. You didn't tell him what I was going to talk to him about, did you? And I went, Brian, of course. You asked me not. You told me not to tell him. Of course I didn't. Oh, awesome. I don't know if he knows. Uh, that I, there was no way I was going to let him quit. I said to him, in fact, he writes about this in Life and Parts. As we're walking back to the apartment, I go, there's the Charles River. I said, look down there. I said, look down river. Look at those bends. I said, you're worried about things that has already happened. We've already done the show. It's been a huge hit. You've won all these awards. We took it to Broadway. It was a huge hit. It won all these awards. We made a film version of this film, mm-hmm. of this show. I said, it's already happened right down river, right in the future. Now, all you got to do is just paddle down there. You don't have to think about or worry about, is it going to happen? It's already happened. Wow. Now, just connect the dots, man. Just paddle down river to it. Mm-hmm. That's the part he, he shares in his book. The other part, I don't, I don't think he knows about. <laughs> so the show opened. The show was a big hit. I packed my bags. I haven't seen my gal in about a month. And Bill and Robert take me aside. And they say, would you stay? It hadn't, we hadn't opened yet. We're still in previews. Yeah. I said, well, um, they said, we'd like to hire you to understudy what turned out to be basically all the other white male roles in the show, not Martin Luther King, not LBJ, but damn near everybody else. Yeah. I'm going to understand. They said, we watched you, you, you know, the show. I didn't dare tell them, well, I know Brian's lines. I don't know everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, they said, this is what you know, it'll be a union actors equity scale contract, which actually was less paying than what Brian was paying me. So I was about to say no when they said, and if we move to Broadway, We'll make sure that you're in the cast. I picked up the phone and I said, honey, I'm staying up here. (laughs) So that's how I came to be in the Broadway show because I basically saved the show. That's right. And the guys decided to put me in it, you know, because I was a good team player. Well, I mean, that's, that is, is absolutely amazing story. Uh, I'm glad I brought it up. Maybe not for your nine roles, but um, it's obviously uh, an amazing story. So, so let me end. Let me end the theater questions with this one, Bill. If there was one show out there that you absolutely love, that it would be your dream role to be in theater production, what would it be? Sleuth. Sleuth. I'm maybe 13 years old when the film comes out. I remember. I remember the Broadway shows advertising. But my dad read a review that sounded like it was a little more adult for me. So we did not go see that show on Broadway. But when the film came out, my dad decided I was old enough. So the two of us drove down to the Fox Theater in Hackensack. And we watched Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine in the film Sleuth. And I was just crazy for it. And my sophomore year at Fairfield, I met a guy who was a graduate student uh, in the communications department there. And the two of us pitched the idea of doing the show. And we did sleuth at the, the, the little kind of, it was, it was kind of like a stables that had been converted into a little theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a great time. I played the Michael Caine role. So yeah, before I check out, I'd love to play the Olivier role 
uh, in that film at some point in time. But I got to tell you, somebody, somebody out there in regional theater has got to do network. And when they do, I mean, I'm the guy who understudied Brian on Broadway. I would love to get a shot to play that role in front of a live audience. So I gave you one and one A. That's right. That's, that's See, the, the my one for you in the limited, you know, the hour and a half that we've been speaking to one another would have been the wizard from Wicked. And that was the, the original Joel Grey role. Right. And I will tell you that just I feel like your presence just on this on this screen that I'm looking at would be fantastic. And I saw the original cast when I was at I was when I was in college. We had a cool. I was taking a theater class. We took a trip up when they were doing preview shows. Oh, that's and awesome. Joel Joel Gray was great in that role. And I just I don't know, just got that vibe. I, I would put you in Wicked as the Wizard of Oz. Is it a, is it a singing dancing role? It is. Yeah, I'm not much of a singer. I mean, I can warble, you know, with Perry. No, that's the- okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, it's not. It's not a huge, <laughs> which is weird for a guy like Joel Gray that it's not this huge show-stopping number. But yeah. it was a very, it was a little bit more of a contained role that I've seen Joel Gray in. So it was. I'm telling you, it'd be a good one. There's there are two kinds of actors. I'll tell you guys. There are Hamlets and there are Draculas. Hamlet is a four-hour and fifteen-minute long show. Hamlet, the character is on stage for all but 15 minutes of yeah. those four hours and 15 minutes when Fortinbras mm-hmm. is coming around, if you do the whole thing. Yep. And when Hamlet's on stage, Hamlet is talking. And there's Dracula, the Hamilton Dean, John Balderston stage version. It's a little more than two hours. Yep. The character of Dracula is on stage for only about 16 minutes of those two plus hours. When he's off stage, all everybody does is talk about Count Dracula. And then finally you walk on stage and your first line is good evening. And you bring the house down that role. You know, the older you get, yeah. particularly you stop looking for Hamlet, You start looking for Dracula. So that yeah. <laughs> of the wizard in the way that, that certainly sounds like a, a yeah. Dracula type role. Yeah. So, you know what? I, I'm just going to, it's off script here, but at this point, who the hell cares? I, I got to ask the question. You've, you've mentioned monster movies. You've mentioned, Dracula. Now you you mentioned I, I believe uh, I don't think you did you mention Boris Karloff earlier yeah. maybe maybe yeah. he was my first hero yeah so do you have a favorite classic Universal monster that oh. if given the chance you would portray ah what a fun <laughs> idea well I got to tell you it's the guy who got me into this I was never a leading man no. it was Dwight Fry. I mean, his Fritz in yeah. in, Fra- in Dra- his Renfield in Dracula, mm-hmm. and then his Fritz in Frankenstein. Yeah, not in one year. Yeah, and here's a mind blower you may not know about Dwight Fry. In the second half of the twenties, he's a very successful Broadway actor. Oh. In fact, I'll give you two things about him on Broadway. There's a famous play by a guy named uh, Pirandello, Six Characters in Search of an Author. Uh, you may know the title. You may not have ever sat through it. It's this very existential play where everybody comes on stage and they realize they're characters in a play, but the playwright hasn't written them yet. It's a very esoteric, very, wow. very cool show. Yeah. Yep. And, and Dwight Fry played the role of the son in that. That was his, I think, Broadway debut. Yeah. And it was a big deal. Then he did not play Renfield on Broadway. He was not in the Lugosi Dracula that opened in 27. But in 25, he's in a play with Lugosi called the devil in the cheese, the devil in the cheese. Uh, He was a prolific stage actor. 
And when he started a family and moved out to LA to find work in film, Dracula and Frankenstein happened for him right away. Yeah. I think what I like, you know, and then of course he got so typecast and he said, you know, what, what idiot am I playing this week? Um, and it's kind of heartbreaking that he just got smaller and smaller roles playing the same thing. And it didn't make sense because you're like, wait, that's, that's Fritz. You got, you got killed four films ago. What? Now you guys know about Dwight Fry and Bride of Frankenstein? I do I'm y- vaguely. He's got the scene where Ernest Messenger, who's Dr. Pretorius, mm-hmm. is down in the crypt and they're, they're taking out a body, you know, and, uh, you know, it was a very fresh one. Where did you get it? It was a police case. You know, but he's down there with, with uh, Dwight Fry and another actor who are like his two assistants. Yep. And they're sort of creeped out by Pretorius. Yep. And as they scuttle away, because he wants to be alone, he wants to enjoy his wine and his cigar and his bread on, the, mm-hmm. on top of the coffin. Fry has a great line. If we have to do much more of this, what do you say we turn ourselves in and let him hang us? <laughs> the guy goes, I'm with you. And, and, as, and he mutters, this was no life for murderers. <laughs> and then, of course, the monster comes out from the shadows and he and yep. Pretorius have their conversation. Yep. There's another shot later on when they tie up the monster. And it's that whole, you know, Christ metaphor and he's being yep. and all that. And E.E. Uh, uh, e. Clive as the, as the, as the uh, constable. You know, yep. look at you. You called me to solve this, you know. Yeah. And, and he, where is he? Where is he? And it's a two shot. Fry's leaning up against a tree and yep. he just gestures up there. Yep. I get no cooperation, no cooperation at all. Yep. Um, there's something in the third act of Brian of Frankenstein doesn't make sense. Suddenly there's a rampage of dead bodies. The little girls who are coming out of Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. There's Maria. And they look down in the bushes and all the girls scream. Well, the monster's killing children. The original script has Dwight Fry's character as a serial killer committing all the murders. And they decided in post in order to shorten the running time to eliminate all that. So he still has the one scene in the crypt and he's got that one two shot with E.E. Clive. Right. But there's more because suddenly the monster is killing children. No, he's not. It's Dwight no. Fly's character, and that was all excised, and which oh. which infuriated Karloff. Yeah, uh, as much as the first one where they cut him throwing the little girl in because it made it look like he did something more to the little girl. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh. I, I guess as much as I love the Wolfman, not the not Lunch not the, not Oliver the Reed. Oliver yeah. Reed in yeah. Hammer. Curse yeah. the werewolf. That's a yeah. great werewolf. So, so it's the damnedest thing is you get all of the. I'm partial to the creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't oh, know. Wow. I, I can't. I don't know why. Sure. And it's because funny you like because Dave Edmonds, and you're one of the few people who can sing the Dave Edmonds song. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so soon. It's, it's the because you look at things like this and you say like Bride of Frankenstein is universally regarded as one of the better of the monster movies you throw a tidbit like that out there and how much better could it have been if you got the whole story and you know i mean then you look at the the tom cruise remake of frankenstein of the mummy a few years ago which 
just not in the spirit of what that character should be. What they're sitting on a dark universe of yeah. all those monsters. Yeah. Like what Marvel has been able to do after yep. decades of failure with, with Marvel. You yep. know, I, I remember articles in variety. Why can't Marvel get its act together? Yeah. You know, uh, where Roger Corman had the fantastic four. Yeah. Uh, and if you have enough time, I'll give you my Roger Corman story. Uh, but, to do the, and, and the idea that Henry Jekyll is the unifying theme. I would have been great. I would have been great idea. for that. Yep. However, here's an interesting tidbit of the classic monsters. Yep. The only one Universal did not do was Dr. Yep. Jekyll. Which is crazy to me. Yeah. So last question on Universal Monsters. Invisible Man, monster or just misunderstood genius? Well, he's not supernatural. No. So, uh, yeah, he was well, always a weird it, fit for I me. like my monsters supernatural. Correct. I, I, I don't need the, the psychosexual serial killer next door, you right. know, um, but certainly because of all the elements. Yeah. And, and of course, with Claude Rain's wonderful performance and, oh, and even yeah. some place in the sequel, the first sequel. Yeah. Uh, I have no use for any of the other ones after that. But, you yeah. know, it's all, you know, the second horror, second monster wave at the studio was for World War II. Oh. Uh so it was to distract the audiences about the real horrors yep. uh, and, and the invisible men even more than any other yep. embraced the world war two anti-Nazi propaganda concept. And I admire them for that. It's like the mummies. I hate yep. all the mummies, but power to them. They tried to keep a through line. Yep. Sometimes the, the math is wrong, yep. but, they, and, and in the last one, it's your, there's your female mummy. And that's a great move when, when she crawls, a lousy movie, but she crawling out of the swamp, visually, they nailed it. Yep. Um, but I, other than the first two Invisible Man, no use for them, no use for the mummies. Mm-hmm. It's all about the, the big three for me, yeah. yeah. Did you see the Elizabeth Moss remake of The Invisible Man a couple of years ago? It, it looked creepy. That that was like the, that was like the Invisible Thing with, with Kevin Bacon. So, uh, Hollow Man. It's all yeah. about it's all about seeing the the hot chick in her underwear. And yeah. I'm, aren't we past that? And no, if, apparently and if, we're not. Well, if that's what you need, yeah. it's 21st century, and just open up your laptop and go into the yeah. basement, yeah. or, you know, or yeah. your phone. You know, just go in the you know. I'm, no, that's, right. okay. How much do you love? How much do you love what we do yeah. in the shadows? Yeah. Do you yeah. watch what we do in the shadows? Yeah. So I've seen a guy, not the whole thing. I'm not oh the, so. Oh my god, yeah. that first season unbelievably funny how yeah. they're playing with the horror conventions and the tropes and all yeah. that. It's hilarious. I love yeah. that show. Absolutely. So, right. so I think, so we're going to put a, a universal to bed. Yeah. Don't, because <laughs> I tracked it. That's what happens on our program. We, we routinely, we call those squirrel moments. Squirrel. Yeah. We just end up off. So the last squirrel moment I have before, I think we kind of get into the anime and then I think drew, we have some, so maybe some TV questions, some general questions yeah. left after that is you did some work and, and we did talk about it a little bit offline and, and, and maybe a, a reader's digest version of you did some work and, and I'm not sure of the timeline here and, and you can kind of explain that with, with Ebru TV yeah. as a cinema liaison uh, from what I read again. I, so I'm going to let you kind of tell the story. Okay. Uh, Sure. Just in kind of how you got situated, how you got involved with that, and, and what that kind of entailed. And, and even sure. up high level, what Ebru TV is. 
I yeah. think for our listeners might not fully understand that. Okay. Yep. Well, how I got involved was uh, I slept with uh Oh, no, sorry, that's an answer. <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's usually the soap opera question. Um, no, there was this new company that put out an ad for uh, dubbers. And I had not only dubbed as an actor, but I'd also directed and I had also uh, adapted scripts. And I put in and my experience was good enough. And they, they brought me in and it were these Turks. And they wanted me to start the next week dubbing some live action shows into English. And I said, well, what's the schedule and, and what's my salary? And they said, well, let's, let's see how things work out. And I realized, oh, wow, they don't know they're in America. <laughs> you want me to start a job not, not knowing how much I'm going to get paid? Yeah. So, of course, I walked away. But a year later, they got a, a different understanding and they got some different people in there. And, yeah, they were, they were Turks and they were all part of a group. And, by the way, they're very secretive, so I had to find this out over time. They're all part of um, – they were Gulenists. Gulenists are followers of uh, Fethullah Gulen, uh, who is a Turkish cleric. Um, are you guys familiar with Opus Dei? Do you ever, you ever see um, uh, Tom Hanks movies about uh, uh, about the, the what, what, what were they called? What was uh, Drew, you made fun of me for liking the movies last week. The Da Vinci Code and, uh, yeah, Vinci, yeah. and uh, <laughs> Angels and Demons and but, Inferno. You know, and I love those scores. Great. Those yeah. music scores for me are as good as the Bourne movies. Yeah. I love those. <laughs> yeah. So Opus Dei is a very right conservative-leaning organization within the Catholic Church. Uh, well, uh, Gulen is like that for Islam, only they're very progressive. They're very progressive uh, for Muslims. You know, they're, they're still not, you know, very progressive uh, outside of that faith. But they hired me. And I had a blast. And over several years, I just voice acting, dubbing all kinds of shows that came out of this um, one TV channel called uh, Salman Yolo. And they did cop shows and they did, they, they did a Muslim version of, of, um, of um, Highway to Heaven, the Michael Landis show, which if you found out about it, he should have sued because it was just a complete ripoff, only it's, it's not Christian, it's Islam. And I was dubbing, I, would, I dubbed hundreds of these shows over a span of several mm-hmm. years. And then they said, you know, we do news. Uh, we have a weekend show and we have an evening show, but we've decided we're going to do an early morning show and we'd like you to produce it. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm not really a producer. Yep. They said, yes, we, we've seen you have a producing credit with Brian Cranston. I said, I was associate producer on a feature film he directed called Last Chance. Yeah. That's a movie. That's uh-huh. not news. Right. And they said, well, we know you very well and we like, we like who you are. And we think you could do a good job. Mm-hmm. So nobody had ever asked me to produce a live daily one hour morning TV news show, which was international. The only, the only continent you couldn't find it on was Antarctica. But I had to be in, I had to be in the studio at 3 a.m. Oh. And the pay was lousy. But I did it. And I did it for like nine months before I burned out. Um, and I did put myself as the, as the movie guy, every now and then they would say, we like what you talk about movies. Would you go on and talk about film? So I would put myself on, which the producer is not supposed to put himself <laughs> on. Um, but uh, I left that show because it was, you know, 3 a.m. and no money. If it was good money at 3 a.m., that would have been fine. If it was no money and a normal schedule, that would have been yeah. fine. But yeah. I couldn't do both. And then uh, about a year later, um, things turned bad in Ankara, right. Istanbul. Yep. 
And most of the guys I worked with who went back home mm-hmm. are in prison. Yeah. Uh, Erdogan, uh, when he, he blamed the insurrection on, uh, uh the coup, mm-hmm. who is a pacifist and all Gulenists are pacifists. Right. Um, but he, he locked them all up except for Gulen Bey, who is, uh, who lives in the Poconos yep. and, uh, uh, hopefully is, uh, is going to stay there because, um, yeah. there are people who are trying to get him back. Erdogan put a price on his head. Yep. Former friend, by the way, uh, Erdogan used to be a Gulenist himself. Yep. He's a, he's a strong man. Yeah. And uh, Ennis Cantor, who's a guy who I, I, yep. uh, I, I host some shows he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he does these uh, sponsors, these events for young people. It's a, it's an Olympiad of poetry and dance mm-hmm. and song. And uh, when they do the American heats around the U S uh, I'm very often the, uh, the MC for the shows. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. I mean, and I'm glad. Thanks for sharing that story. I know it's, you know, in some in some circles, it might be considered a, a taboo conversation to have. But I think here, uh, I'm, we don't I'm, really have. I'm, I don't think I'm going outside of the U.S. for any time soon. No, no uh, and I'm also not. not a high profile guy. But I also know that it would be foolish of me to Correct. go on vacation and, to Turkey. And like I said, when we were doing the research, I, I had said to these guys, I think that's a kind of an interesting conversation to have. And furthering that. In an interesting, not my best segue ever, Drew. Um, we, we've discovered that you are quite the voice of anime, and our, our other co-host Tim, the bigger anime fan that we have on the show, um, kind of had some questions that he put together that that I think Drew's going to talk about now, and just kind of discuss a little bit about your your anime career and how you even got started in that. Because again, I don't wouldn't even know where to begin. So. So Drew, well, yes, I refer you to my previous response that began with "I slept with." Isn't <laughs> that how it always yeah. begins? Uh, no, so uh, anime, huge part of your life, Bill. Uh, over thirty unique credits of voice acting, voice directing, and even strip adaptation, as well as dubbing, like you've already talked about a little bit. Um, before you really get involved in this, I mean, were you an anime fan, let's say, or, or was this more of a line of work to begin with? Well, I was a, I was a cartoon fan uh, because of Bugs Bunny. As little kids, we watched Mickey Mouse and, you know, Mickey Mouse cartoons, Disney cartoons, the shorts do not hold up. Uh, they're sort of violence driven and they're not interesting. Whereas Bugs, there's historical references. There's wit. There's a tremendous amount of wit in uh, in, in the Warner Brothers yeah. cartoons. Uh, so I was very much involved with that. And yeah, I thought about throughout, I mean, Johnny Quest and those things. I, I love doing the cartoon voices. Um, but my life changed when I was 12 and my mom dropped me and the guys off on a Saturday afternoon for a double bill of Thunderball and you only live twice. Hmm. And in the climactic moment of you only live twice, when Bond's fighting Blofeld's henchmen, there's a guy counting down the rocket launch. Two minutes and counting. One minute and counting. Very deep voice, but it's not him. Because I had just seen a shot in the dark on TV and Spectre Clouseau's sidekick Cato, that's who's doing the countdown. But that's not his voice. Mm-hmm. So the Bond films as a kid even helped me understand that voice work is a very common thing in movies. It's just a very anonymous thing. For example, Goldfinger. You guys know Goldfinger? Oh, yeah. Who plays Goldfinger? Gert uh, Frobe, right? Okay. Yep. The actor's name. That's the actor you're looking at. That's not his voice. Huh. Another actor is the voice of Goldfinger. Okay, wow. here's an easy one. Dr. No. Who's the babe coming out of the water in the white bikini and the uh, and the dagger? 
Ursula Andres. Ursula Andres, right? Yep. Yep. Not her voice. Wow. Crazy. The anonymous voice actress did did the the Connery bonds are filled with voice replacements. No. It's not dubbing. It's because it's the same language, but so, it's voice replacement. So, I, 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 I did ask you a question of that. How as an actor yourself and, and being part of this dub and voiceover work, right. how does it feel as an actor saying we want to cast you but we don't want your voice? They don't it, ever say that to anybody until afterwards. Just they, didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think Cubby Broccoli liked his his girl, so to speak. To sound as sexy as they looked, okay, and that's, you know that's a two for two that's hard to pull off. Yeah, es- yeah. especially yeah. especially when you're being cast because you were in the Miss America, the, the Miss Universe pageant, mm-hmm. which is what Daniela Bianchi did. She represented Italy, and now she's the female lead in From Russia with Love, mm-hmm. but she's never acted before, yep. and she's Italian and she's playing a Russian agent. It's and it's another way to pull yeah. that off. Uh, yep, that made sense. So, so they hired a very well-respected British stage actress, Dame Barbara Jefford, to revoice that role. I mean, it's a huge role, but nobody who watches it would ever guess that that's not her voice. So anyway, I was always looking to get into what they call ADR, where you put voices in mm-hmm. after the film is done in, in post-production. And I found my way in because uh, somebody who my, – my agent's assistant – Knew somebody who needed somebody to audition for that, as I mentioned, that that uh, adults-only anime. And I made my peace with what the material was, and I got the male lead, and I worked so fast that they started having me do other roles, changing my voice here, changing my voice here. I got whole scenes where I'm, I'm doing scenes with myself in that movie. That's cool. Um, and that's, and the, the people there in the studio went, we really like what you do. And then they put me on a feature film the next week, which was live action doing, doing additional voices or, or replacement. And that's my ADR career started in 91 ish. And that's still like my main source of income. Um, Bruce Willis in the sixth sense, the first scene, mm-hmm. he gets shot in the belly and he's lying back on the bed and he's gasping and groaning. No, he's not. That's me doing his gasping. Wow. That's uh, awesome. Hannibal, the silence of the lamb sequel. Gary Oldman in his wheelchair. Uh, Hannibal talks his, his aide, Jekyll Ivanik, you know, mm-hmm. to pitch him out of the wheelchair into the hogs, and he shrieks in terror as he's being devoured by the hogs. No, he's not. That's my my shrieks. That's I'm, awesome. I'm the one doing the screams for him. Because, you know, by the time you get in a post, it's months later, and those oh, yeah. guys are off on other pictures. You're not going to pay him a ton of money to come back just to right. do screaming and groaning and breathing and all that. Uh, Bowfinger, the Eddie Murphy, yeah. Steve Martin. I'm the voice of Minehead. When Eddie goes to Minehead and he's in the elevator, you hear the droning, welcome to Minehead. Welcome to Minehead. Yeah, I'm the voice of Minehead. Wow. That, so, so that's something definitely, um, I'm going to say, the average movie watcher doesn't nah. recognize, right? Nobody. And, and, Nobody. Uh, and it, it's kind of an um, unappreciative position right or, or or really i mean you you're putting in a lot of effort too to you're, you're probably studying that at church uh and how they talked and how they would do that scene yep and now you're you're adding and, that in like you said and it's in seconds you oh yeah you the mic you might you're you're shown the footage once the script is in front of you if it's a script or otherwise you're, you're improvising yep and you're matching exactly what you're seeing you're connecting your energy to the actor's body movements you don't you don't have to go I wonder if I should whisper this or, or shout it, or how should I play it? You don't have to. 
because it's already it's like in anime it's drawn that way in a yep. live action film it's already been filmed that way and and you give it what you see which helps with the authenticity and it helps you keep your disbelief suspended that's awesome and, and, and like you said that happens i'm sure more often than people recognize Com- constantly constantly that's that's that's, that's awesome um all right, so about your, your Tim is this Tim you said? Uh, yep, Tim's our co-host. Yep, and he has another question for the anime. He has a couple, yeah. So, uh, you know, he he says here you've been involved in English dubbing uh, for anime since the early 1980s, long before it was considered 90s, early a, 1990s. Yep, big part of the American entertainment landscape. How did you get involved with uh, anime industry so early on? Which which we we kind of talked about, right? Yeah. But I think I think the point is he's trying to make here is. It's never been more popular today, right? Uh, we talked about this actually in a previous episode. Pokemon is considered one of the the number one franchise in the it's world. Phenomenal. It's, 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 it's amazing, right? Uh, you know, how do you feel that a lot of your early on work really helped mainstream the popularity of all these things, especially in the United States? Well, it's not so much my work as how they're drawn and, and the stories they tell. You guys are too young. When I was a kid, there was anime on American television, we just didn't know the word. But Speed Racer and Gigantor and Kimba the White Lion, um, and even Astro Boy predated that. And I don't remember Astro Boy, but I remember all those others. And I remember the first two lines of every one of those theme songs. And then that next wave happened when you guys were around, which was Sailor Moon and Mm -hmm. Dragon Ball Z and Akira. Uh, There was another one. Oh, and and then Miyazaki. Mm Mm-hmm. Being yeah. in the Miyazakis. All right. Mm-hmm. You guys are Disney. Why did Disney pick up all the Miyazaki films? I don't know. <gasps> oh, my Bob? God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure why they did, but. Yeah. Well, you know, and they were Totoro and Howl's Moving Castle mm-hmm. uh, yep. and all that yeah. stuff. And they would have celebrity voices, you know, mm-hmm. um, Princess Monoke, who was a Claire Danes, I think, voices. Mm-hmm. Princess Monoke. Mm-hmm. It was to dissuade Miyazaki and his people from suing them. Oh. The Lion King. That's right. Yep. Is Kimba the White Lion. Correct. Yep. Which was the early Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and with, you know, and with Hamlet. It's a mixture right. of, yeah. of Miyazaki and Hamlet. Uh, and they and it took a big chance because at that time, they didn't know if, if that would fly. But it worked out very well for the the das uber mouse <laughs> that's awesome so so one one final question maybe not necessarily an anime you worked on but what would you say your all-time favorite anime currently is wow uh i did a thing i, I script adapted and did some uh, uh smaller roles on a dub of something called uh, magical witch Punichan, which is really far out. In fact, Jimmy Kimmel used to show a clip of this anime on his show. It was a clip of a potato killing itself, committing harikari by peeling himself and diving into the boiling pot of water while the carrots and the mushrooms were crying for him. It is a wacky, it's only three episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I love, I love Lotus War. I love, I love, love Gokudo, which is, 
this huge show I did, and it's what I'm most proud of, a 26-episode show that I, I did all the stuff on. And then I'm really, really proud of that. But if you're looking for a quick hit, uh, I mean, uh, Magic Witch Punichan fits in a parody of Platoon in the middle of it. It's really nutty. But huh. Gokudo Swordsman Extraordinaire. Okay. I went hog wild on it because the mm-hmm. licensor was not paying us. But my producer loved the show so much, he kept paying me and the actors out of his own pocket to keep wow. the show going. It took us a year to do it. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they never asked to see my adapted scripts to approve them. So I started doing wild stuff. <laughs> I, 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 I stayed true to the spirit of the show without necessarily going word for word with the translation. And that's probably the show I am most proud of in my career was my adaptation, my directing of the cast and my own voice work in the series known as Gokudo Swordsman Extraordinaire. Now, is there anywhere today that we could view this? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's all over the Internet. Um, It's Netflix or you got to buy it on Amazon. But all those things are so Mm -hmm. easy to find. Yeah. All right. I'll have to look that one up. Uh, I I really hit my stride in volumes three, four, and five. I go, I go crazy. (laughs) crazy. I don't want to give you, I know we're running out of time, so I don't want to give you an example, but that's okay. It's I, and I did it in the spirit of the Bugs Bunny shows of the asides. Um, all right. So obviously you had a, 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 anime was a big impact on your life. Um, however, film though, I know we haven't really got too much of the film, but there's a few film things that we just, we can't overlook. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Last Chance a little bit earlier, yeah. uh, which again you had an associate producer credit. Uh, you you were part of the film, but the one that stuck out to me, and, and you don't have to tell me the story behind this one, stunt coordinator. Yep. Um, do you have history in stunt work? Or my thing was I wanted to. I loved as a kid doing the stunts, shooting the Super Eight films in the backyard, mm-hmm. and then just out of college, my first show in New York was a production of The Three Musketeers which was on the uh, low library steps in the Columbia University quad, which is gets a lot of attention early on in Ghostbusters. But we, I mean, we had D'Artagnan fighting, uh, fighting Richelieu uh, all in the fountain and all these places. Not Richelieu. Who was the bad guy? I forget. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so I did a lot of studying of, uh, of stage uh, uh, sword fighting. Loved it. Um, got cast as Alfred Vanderpool on all my children before I went as far as to get licensed. Okay. But, uh, the col- Seton Hall used to do a lot of classic shows and they used to ask me to come back to stage the sword fights. And my first goal would be make sure these young maniacs not get hurt. Uh, but I got some fun stuff. The Cyrano I did for them. I'm really, really proud of. Um, and I did the Scottish play and I did, I did um, uh, Romeo and Juliet and those things. And then, yeah, when, when we did Brian's movie, there's going to be a little fight between he and Tim Thomerson and he had me stage it. And then when I came back to uh, to New Jersey, I would answer ads. Somebody was looking for somebody. Uh, and, you know, I was low rent at that time. You know, people who do it for a living probably were, were pricing it too high. So, you know, I did it as a sideline and I got to do some fun little horror films. I hope to still do them again. I really like doing that. Stuff. Yeah. It, it, there's something about independent horror films that, oh, yeah. that are just a blast. So much. Um, Any- it, 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 Anybody listening, find me on Facebook. I'm available. I want to work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. Give me another take on that with less whining. You can find me on Facebook. I'm I'm available to work. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Like, like I said earlier, I had the opportunity to work with uh, Robert England on a on a independent oh, cool. horror film, and the guy is a treat. He is a character, a storyteller as well. Awesome. But it's so funny. You watch these films, and you you sit on the other side of the camera, and it's you know he plays this. Everyone knows him as this, you know, horror freak of Freddy Krueger. Right. And then as soon as you're on the other side of the, you know, he's the nicest, sweetest guy in the world. And it, it's funny to see those things, uh, you sure. know, firsthand. Absolutely. There's, um, I forget the actress's name. She played the uh, the grand dame on General Hospital for many, many years. I'm going blank on her name. But as an ingenue in the 40s, she worked at RKO where Val Luton was doing, you know, he, he brought on Karloff for some of those films. And she was signed to RKO. So she did several of them. I think she's in Bedlam, and uh, and she might be in The Black Room or a couple others. And she also was in their comedies. And she gave an interview once where she went, I always wanted to work on the horror pictures that always upset everybody because Boris and everybody else, they were having so much fun. And we were laughing and laughing and laughing until the moment they said, roll them. And then they'd all jump into it. And the moment they said, cut, everybody's laughing again. She said, when we did the comedies, everybody was deadly serious. Well, that's, that's not funny. Well, how can we make that funnier? She said, so I always preferred working with, with Boris and the other monster makers. That's awesome. Um, so being a Disney-focused podcast, in a way, we're branching out a little bit. Um, I got to ask you, how was it to work with Disney in Mission to Mars? Um, you were the famous computer, right? Uh, voiceover. So what was what was that opportunity? What was that yeah. like? It was a very intimate thing in that um, – I got I auditioned for it while I was doing group ADR on another film, uh, and in New York, uh, that stuff in the nineties was all done at the Brill Building, which, as you know about from you know, um, uh, was it Carol K- Carol King and all that stuff that was the Brill Building, all the recordings. Well, in the eighties and nineties, it's a big uh, uh, film pro- post production place, mm-hmm. and they had me go down the hall with some other people to audition for the voice of the computer, uh, and I, a couple of days later, I found out I got it. And uh, I went in there, and it was just myself and the woman who was the um, the post production um, audio uh, supervisor. And she handed me a note, and it was from Brian De Palma, the director. And I was disappointed. I was hoping De Palma would be there because I wanted to work with him. Um, and the note had three words on it: "Don't be Hal." <laughs> I mean, so it's tough in science fiction being a computer not referencing Hal when you're doing that work. I, I got to think. Yeah. yeah. Hey, look, Christopher Walken has made an entire career going, how is this role always done? So yeah. how different can I do it? Right. Which is the genius of his uh, drill instructor in, uh, in Biloxi Blues. Everybody expects Lou Gossett Jr. or, or Lee, R. Lee Ermey or something like that. Yeah. And Walken walks on on screen for the first time and he goes, Paul Lynn. <laughs> and you go, what? And by the end of it, like, genius. Yep. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, yeah, you do make the choice, yep. not organically, yeah. but based on what the audience is expecting. Yep. Especially in a horror film. I hate it when guys who don't know horror make a horror film thinking they're going to da-da-da, and they're doing a bit that you saw 15 years ago. Yep. You know? The audience, the public craves innovation because the key to any good storytelling is surprise. Yep. Don't give me something I saw in It, the Terror from Beyond Space. And if you're going to do it, which is what Dan O'Bannon did with Alien, he basically took It, the Terror from Beyond Space 
which I was just watching before I came on with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it came across, I was flipping, I went, oh my God, it's it. The, I was six years old and it, the terror from beyond space. <laughs> it's, of course, hilarious to watch now. Right. But if you're going to do it, move move it forward, man. No. Yeah. So I'm voicing the computer. I have a whole, I have two scenes with Tim Robbins. Mm-hmm. Tim Robbins has already shot his stuff. And, you know, somebody off camera just read the lines, which, by the way, is what happened in 2001. Yep. Uh, and, okay, what's my concept? Well, I'm not going to be Douglas Rain. I can't sound like, I'm sorry, Dave. I've, right. I've been having some difficulty lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can't do that. Yeah. But I like the idea of being only on a track somewhere in a machine. Yeah. You know, you talk about making a sound and, and grounding it. Mm-hmm. Organic. You're within yourself. You're in your body. Well, this guy doesn't have a body because he's not a guy. So what I did was I used only air. I like, I was all I had. There's nothing but the air. And I made every single word like it was recorded separately. Like, 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 well, like when you get, you know, welcome to movie phone, your yep. selection today. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Amityville <laughs> horror or the possession with no times at seven thirty, nine forty five. So, so I did him. I did the computer like mm-hmm. that. And then, yeah. of course, as the spacecraft is dying, yep. running out of air, yep. since my decision was to make him only air, mm-hmm. oxygen level 45%. And then I get lower and I go, mm-hmm. oxygen level 37%. You know, just less and less and less. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not that he's dying the way Hal is dying, mm-hmm. but just that. He's losing the only thing that he is, which is air. No, Gene. Yeah, no, it's genius. That, that that's yep. that's awesome to see, especially to yep. see from your side of it, to see how you team do that. Yeah, um, yeah. Love all it. right, so the so the last big one, I obviously we 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 briefly touched on it, but I, I love to hear a little bit more on it from your side of the fence. Uh, you had the opportunity to work on one of the biggest Netflix hits in a long time, but some of the biggest names in Hollywood, The Irishman. Yeah. Um, you got to do in a complete improv scene, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. with Mr. Robert De Niro himself. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? And what did that really mean to you as an actor? Everything. It's not just a top five moment in my career, it's a top five moment in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got cast that summer. I made two enormous mistakes in the audition, and I was so relaxed, it didn't matter. And it was Two lines, an attorney interrogating uh, one of Al Pacino's henchmen mm-hmm. who keeps looking over his shoulder at Jimmy Hoffa because Pacino was signaling take the fifth. And at the audition, they said, you only have the one line, so improvise some lines after that. So I did, and that was in August, and I never heard anything. And it was very clear I was going to be one of seven actors in the New York City metropolitan area who was not going to work on The Irishman. <laughs> And I'd been told the scene would film in November, and November came and went. So I put myself in for background extra work because I wanted to be near Scorsese. I wanted to see that. Just Mm -hmm. be on the wall. I'll work background, sure, just for that. And I got a job as a background extra playing a teamster. And I went out to the studio and got my wardrobe fitted. Mm -hmm. And the day before I was supposed to film the scene, my agent called me and said, "Uh, Mr. Scorsese would like you to play the attorney. Mm-hmm. And I said, I thought that was filming in November. She said, oh, it was. This is a different attorney. I said, oh, 
So I had to quickly call the guys and cancel out of playing a back on extra. Mm-hmm. And uh, the week before Christmas, which was the end of their filming until the break, mm-hmm. I was sent the script. You're playing the prosecutor at at uh, at uh, De Niro's second trial, mm-hmm. Frank Sheeran's second trial. And I looked at my pages, and there's a testimony speech from De Niro, and that was it. It doesn't, doesn't, not only is there no lines for me, it doesn't even say prosecutor. Right. Just a speech. No, I listen to you. No, you listen to me. I never gave Baffo a dime. And what Baffo does with his money, that's his business. I'm just trying. So it was that speech. Hmm. And now we film on January 6th. We're back in. And I hit my spot. And there's a guy that looks like De Niro sitting in the witness stand. And suddenly the first AD says, uh, hi, Bill. Has Marty told you what he wants you to say? I said, no. Panic moment. Woman comes up to me. <laughs> an enormous laptop, four times the size of our laptops. I yeah. feel like so-and-so, and, and I'm the historian. Now, this was a real trial. Frank Sheeran in 1980. Yep. And about two minutes later, she calls the first AD over, and she says, uh, Bill knows more about this trial than I do. <laughs> Unlike my youth, when I would have waited to be told, like any good Catholic kid, ring, this is when you stand up, ring, this is when you sit down. Mm. I'd spent the entire Christmas holiday mm. memorizing everything about Frank Sheeran's trials. That's awesome. I memorized everything. So suddenly, the first AD says, Bill, I'd like you to meet Mr. Scorsese. Quickly pass behind me. Hi, I'm, call me Marty. And I get <laughs> half up and shake the hand. <laughs> Frozen. You know, he's gone. Yeah. The, we shot in the Bronx County Courthouse. It was packed with background extras and the mm-hmm. gallery and the and everybody. There's the jury. There's all you know the judge. Everybody. Mm-hmm. You saw me do the half. I missed it and all that. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there's a ring and there everybody settle. And the guy who looks like De Niro isn't sitting there anymore. And now it is De Niro. Mm-hmm. And Scorsese said action. And that was it, man. That yeah. was it. Yeah. So so in that moment, I gotta ask. I mean. You're shitting your pants, right? I mean, to, to put it clear, I mean, obviously you have your professionalism, you have your experience, right? But like you said, this is this is a, a dream come true in a way, right? Well, well, okay. Since you went there, Drew, <laughs> he did. He did. This it is, was it was a blizzard, and I had some trouble getting to the set, Bronx County Courthouse, just above the old Yankee Stadium, right field. Yep. And uh, there was a moment I forget what meal I had, but uh, there was a moment that. Uh, some pressure built up and I found myself thinking, oops. And I'm glad I brought a change of underwear. So yes, Drew. My scene is at the three hour mark and you can think about that when, when, when you <laughs> but I was in such a different place that didn't bother me. Nothing yeah. bothered me. I figured I'm the prosecutor. So this courthouse is mine and I got to put this scumbag in prison. But the other half of me is, I got to help Bob. I got to help Bob get up to, no, I listen to you. No, you listen to me. So I've got that. And I've also got Bafo. So action, Mr. Sheeran, you, your wife, and your four daughters currently reside in 14347 Ashwamani Valley Circle in Ashwamani, Pennsylvania. Is that the correct address of your home, sir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's where we live. And you've been living there for the past five years, is it, Mr. Sheeran? Yeah, yeah. Your backyard overlooks the Schwamini Valley Creek, doesn't it, Mr. Sheeran? Yeah, yeah. So I'm giving him all those facts. Yeah. How many times has Eugene Baffo been in your backyard, been a guest in your home? What are you talking about? 
Oh, come on, Mr. Sheeran. Sometimes when the girls have their Holy Communion, the First Communion, you've had guests, you've had a barbecue in the back. Sometimes you wheel out the TV to watch the Phillies games. Don't you do that, Mr. Sheeran? Yeah, I do that sometime. You know, that's, he's going with it. I'm giving him stuff and he's going with it. Yeah. And Buff Serva, and da da da. And now I start nailing him on the graft between he and Buffo. Mm. And he's, and now I let it get one, two, three minutes. And I'm letting it get more and more and more. And when I feel that I'm aggravating Bob enough, I go, You're not listening to me, Mr. Sheeran. Now listen. No, I listen to you. No, you listen to me. Yeah. So I get him to that place. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You say, Cut. Marty walks up to me and he goes, yeah, like that. And he walks away. <laughs> yep. Yep. So the next take, I'm sorry. I know we're going long, but I got to give it to you. No, that's it. That's so it. Oh, it's take, all right. No, please. So the next take, I don't do that. Yeah. Mr. Sheeran, you are currently the president of Teamsters Local 144.5, located at, and I give him the address of the office in Delaware. And I see De Niro's eyes light up. He knows I'm not going to just give him the same thing, take after take. Yep. I take a completely different tact. And by the time I get him to his, to his outburst, we'll cut. He goes. <laughs> I walk up to him and he, he grabs me, gives me the Roman thing, you know, the, yep. that whole grasp. He goes, I'm so glad they hired a real lawyer for this. I said, <laughs> Bob, I'm an actor. Oh, yeah, I, I know. But when you're not acting, you, you're a lawyer. I went, no, Bob, I'm, I'm just an actor. <laughs> Third time we do it, again, whole different thing. Yep. And after his outburst, I don't let Marty say cut. Yep. I start all over again with yep. more different information. Yep. And I get him to his outburst again. And then I start again. And I just keep going round and round until like three or four times. Then I step away. And Mr. Scorsese figures out now that I'm not talking, he says cut. And now he starts changing angles. And I puts yep. the camera on me, which I did not expect. I did not expect to be in the movie. Mm -hmm. And then the guy who's sitting over there in the defense table, who I thought was another background extra, is not. It's Ray Romano. And now I'm running this place. I go, Ray, do you want to get in on this? M Marty, you want me to give Ray something he can object to? Great idea, Bill. Yeah, 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 Bill, yeah, give me. Okay, yeah, what, you, want, uh, you want objection show cause or badgering the, 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 the witness? Or, or a question? Yeah, yeah. Give, give, give me there. Is there a question in there? You know, so, so we're doing all this stuff. And we did it four hours. And I had a cheat sheet of those numbers, of those addresses, of those names. And nobody ever saw me look at it. A couple of times when they changed the angles, I went into the men's room. I would quickly look to see what I hadn't used yet. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever saw me look. And all the information I was using was real to the point where, De Niro went down to his trailer and came back. Bill, Bill, in, in Frank's other trial, he said this. The uh, uh, Can you get me to say that? Sure, Bob. Uh, Marty, uh, do you want me to uh, say it and have Bob repeat it? Or do you want me to draw it out of him? Bill, why don't we shoot it both ways? Okay with you, Bob? Sure, Bob. Marty? Sure. Yeah, I was like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, Phil, fascinating, fascinating story. Tremendous time. No. I, mean, I listen to it all night. It, it's I'm so pleased you guys dig it. Double yeah. I, double I, baby. We that's, like, right. that's right. Uh, I mean, I would ask you what your favorite film you've ever appeared in, but I, I mean, I think it's now a given. Um, I have to assume it's The Irishman, unless there's another one out there. You know, I haven't. Uh, my voice, there's been a ton. Mm -hmm. But on camera, I really haven't done on film 
as much as I've done on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I would love to. I'd, I'd love to to get some some bigger at bats uh, for feature films. Yeah. Well, just our time with you. Uh, I feel like it's coming. I mean, you're absolutely a, a, a scholar and a gentleman, um, and it's been a blast. But Bob, I think yeah. you have a couple more questions that we want yeah, to we, we wrap do. up. It's funny you talk about television because you've been in some of the best television series of the last 20, 30 years. I mean, you've been, we talked about Blacklist. You've been obviously Malcolm in the Middle. I think we know the connection there at this point. Uh, Blue Bloods and Mr. Robot, 12 Monk, Mr. Robot, fantastic show. Uh, yeah. 12 yeah. Monkeys. And Sam Sam Ismail, who, who's the showrunner on that, the creator. Great, great guy. Yeah. Love working with him. Yeah. I mean, is there a series that you might have had the opportunity to work on that you missed out due to prior engagements? Is there a series you would have loved to have worked on in the past that maybe you weren't necessarily at that point in your career? Robert, um, who wrote uh, All the Way, Robert Schenken, Mm -hmm. they had a bit for me when they shot the HBO film version. Now, I was very involved with it uh, doing voice work Mm-hmm. Uh, our looping team, you know, I made sure that they got the job, just like Trumbo. You know, we mm-hmm. we our team did the did the Trumbo yep. job. Um, and Robert had a fun little thing for me. It was one line, and I'm on the set. I flew out to L.A., and it was a Friday, and they didn't get to it. And they said, "Could you stay till Monday?" And I was I was staying at Brian and Robin's house. Yeah. And uh, they said, stay the weekend. I said, sure. So I stayed, the, changed my flight, stayed the weekend, went back to set on Monday, and uh, they didn't get to it. <laughs> they had to shoot something else, yeah. and they put my bit again at the end of the second day, yeah. and they didn't get to it. And they just said they were losing the set, so they had to move on to something else. So Tuesday, I flew home. And about two weeks later, I mean, I got a call from Robert. We're able to get that set back and we've worked that scene back in. This is Wednesday. It shoots Friday. Can you be on a plane tomorrow? And I said, to film Friday? He said, yeah. I said, Robert, I got Blue Bloods on Friday. Ah! He screamed on the phone. Yeah. So it went to another actor. It was just one line, but it was a really cool scene. And it was right. I would have liked to have done that. But hey, if my biggest complaint is I missed out on one line. I think I'm doing okay. Yeah, I think you're doing all right, and and clearly that has certainly been the case here. Uh, Obviously, you're primarily, uh, television-wise anyway, it's the Alfred Vanderpool role, and and Uh, I I need to know the boys to men story before we go, because I just... I, I, I just don't understand how that inspires boys to men, but certainly maybe there's more to it than that. Then I shall tell you. Um, uh, Alfred starts in 82. Alfred is a preppy nerd. Um, bow tie, sweater vest, chinos, penny loafers, mm-hmm. uh, dorky glasses, who's a brainiac, but he does not ha- know how to talk to girls. So he was the comic relief character in the show's very popular Greg and Jenny storyline. Mm-hmm. It did that from 82 through 85. And then I, you know, the storyline was going, it disappeared and I went out to LA. Um, there was uh, evil, ta- evil Liza, Jenny's bad boy brother, Tad the Cad, and also a black couple, Jesse and Angie. And at the time, nobody was doing a black youth storyline in daytime TV. Right. And Darnell Williams was amazing uh, as Jesse. He was fantastic. And Debbie Morgan uh, as, uh, as his girlfriend. Um, so a lot of urban blacks watched all my children 
just for Jesse and Angie. Uh, and sure enough, cut over to the high school for performing arts in Philadelphia, where they have all my children on in the cafeteria during lunchtime. And these four guys, four high school guys who have been doing a lot of singing together are watching that show for Jesse and Angie, but they all really dig the preppy nerd Alfred Vanderpool. They go to a Biv Bell DeVoe concert and they're able to get backstage to see Michael Bevins and they sing for him. And on the spot, Bevins quits his group to manage these guys. They name themselves Boys to Men. Yep. And they give themselves all uh, onstage names, aliases. But what's popular at the time? The gangster rap, the really tough stuff with the yep. leather vest and the chains and disrespecting women, mm-hmm. and very aggressive stuff. And they want to go against that. They want to go back to the four tops. They want to go back to the drifters. They want to go back to smooth harmonies. So as part of that, they're trying to come up with their look and they go, how about Alfred Vanderpool? Mm-hmm. Bow tie, the, the preppy vests, the chinos, the penny loafers. And I'm, I mean, I had nothing going on. And one of my roommates came home and said, there's a, there's a group. I just bought, there, there's, a, there, there's a bootleg tape I just bought on the corner and they named it after you. I said, well, what are you talking about? Sure enough, boys to men decided that they wanted Alfred Vanderpool's look and Nate Morris took the name Alex Vanderpool and he would say he was Alfred's cousin from Pine Valley and they called their look the yuppie yup Alex Vanderpoolera <laughs> so the name Vanderpool yep. appears in the music videos like Motown Philly like if you remember the video uh, I'll make love to you the setup mm-hmm. is a guy who owns the security systems installing the security for a beautiful woman Mm-hmm. And he's got his company's van and his employees. And you can see on their jackets and on the van, it's Vanderpool security systems. So they would work in Vanderpool, which was That's funny. Huh. inspiring yeah. uh, uh, one of the great yeah. R&B groups of, of great, our generation. I, I mean, mean, I don't, I wouldn't say I inspired their creativity, but certainly <laughs> that, you know what? Back to Damn it. No, Bill, we're giving you credit for boys <laughs> to men. That's what we're doing tonight. <laughs> uh, I would be remiss uh, before we wrap things up. You you did uh, do some work in video games, I I believe, for the the hack series, um, which actually a fairly generally well-received game over over in Japan and and lesser extent here. uh, But Metacritic, uh, all four of the entries in the game went from about a 70 to, a, to an 85 out of 100. So certainly, well, decently respected video games, I guess. Drew could probably speak more to Metacritic's metrics than I would. Um, well, I, would I would say we're going to end then on a downbeat minor key note because I did about 15 minutes of work. Yeah. On that, I was dubbing yeah. another anime. I think I was dubbing Trigun or something. Yeah. And uh, and they had me come into the booth after mm-hmm. we left. And I just, I think it's a computer voice. Uh, or kind of. Could, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and I just did, ver- you know, like, like, like people who do the time, you know, you yep. just say the numbers and all that. Yep. It was, I mean, I know James Earl Jones did the first Star Wars in about 25 minutes. Right. But that's what I did for, I, yeah. it was maybe 15. I wasn't syncing to picture. All those things were wild and they were going to cut them and, mm-hmm. and echo them and replace them and redo them and yep. you know, all that kind of thing. So it was a very, very minor 
blip in my career, but I'm glad yeah. it's gone. Well, so, <laughs> so it is interesting because the follow up for me on that is you obviously did a ton of work with your voice, and that clearly you've talked about it and the video game thing. Do you think? in your opinion as an actor that generally speaking video games anime animation voiceover work does it get looked down on by actors in your opinion in terms of work and it's kind of a weird question so basically well, you get, get a lot of people i that, get you. look yeah. i i come from my first good opportunity mm-hmm. was in soaps right and back then if you're in soaps, you stayed in soaps. Correct. You had very little chance to move up into prime time. It was mm-hmm. first people like Tom Selleck making that move that mm-hmm. opened that up. And if you were on primetime TV, you never got to make movies because right. the attitude was they're gonna not they're not gonna come out to the theaters to see you if they can see you at home. Right. So that was there was a tremendous amount of that. I remember when I first moved to LA in '86, I met the first casting director I met with. Uh, she said, what have you been doing? I said, well, for the last four years, I've been playing the role of Alpha Vanderpool on all my children. And she went, well, you had to make a living, but now you're here. Right. You know, there was that, that really, and I'd love to mm-hmm. say that too, because that stuck with me, yeah. uh, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, certainly uh, in mm-hmm. animation and in, in voice acting, you know, it's a cast system like everything else. The people right. on the top who don't, who, the people who can most afford stuff mm-hmm. never have to pay for stuff. And the people lower down who mm-hmm. can't afford to pay stuff, they always have to pay full price. That's, mm-hmm. that's the nature of the business, nature of life. Yep. And yeah, I remember so clearly Variety or Hollywood Reporter did an article on uh, the first, um, what's the thing with um, Ben Stiller as the lion and Chris Rock as the zebra? Uh, Madagascar. Madagascar. Yep. And it was a big article on him and you know, interviews with David Schwimmer as a, as a mm-hmm. giraffe and all that. And and they talk about, well, we want to do this be, you know, for our kids. Our kids are really did it because all those guys are young fathers. But they ran a sidebar article where they went to the rank and file. People over at Nickelodeon, people over at Class B Supo, which was mm-hmm. you know, all those shows. And, and they interviewed people like uh, Debbie Derry Berry, mm-hmm. who was the voice of Jimmy Neutron. Mm-hmm. And these are not celebrities, but they've got really good jobs. They've got regular voices. You know, I'm a guy right. who comes in and goes out, but you know, they got mm-hmm. the regular voices. And that in that interview talked to those people who made a comment, who responded to David Schwimmer saying, I want to do something really fun for our, for my kids. They said, yeah, we'd like to do something neat for our kids too. pay for their educations. Right. You know, it's, it's that thing about it has to be celebrities. Really? Why does it have to be celebrities? Matt, I would maintain Madagascar has a couple of really good performances, voice match to character Mm -hmm. and some really lame ones. That's fair. Because they're celebrities, the shareholders went, oh, whoa, I'm excited. Yeah. You know, but, but like, I remember Don Bluth breaking from Disney for Secret of Nim. Yeah. And Don DeLuise as the crow is fantastic. Right. And John Carradine as the, as the old owl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jonathan Brisby. You know, fantastic. Yeah. Those are good, really good actors. Right. Um, but, you know, the lead was Elizabeth Hartman, who was a very good movie actress, but was not a name by any stretch right. of the imagination and she was fantastic in that role right no i, I absolutely I I think, but i got some stuff off my phone <laughs> no i think that i know i think that answers the question i i think that uh certainly uh for me that answers my questions drew anything else from you on, on your end 
Uh, no, no, no further, no further questions at all. No so, further uh, questions, Your Honor. Please, we want to, no we want to thank you as always. Uh, absolute pleasure sitting down talking to you. Thank you so much for giving up your time to be with us. Um, and you know, tell our fans, tell our listeners, uh, you know, where could people find you? Where could people follow you? Your latest words? Yeah, you know, where's it a place to to you follow always, you? You can always find me on Facebook. Uh, sure. go to my my page right now. There's a short film a horror short that i wrote and i'm going to direct if the cast is able to raise money so they're looking for people who want to you know make a little investment in their film short film is called the envy of satan um next week dropping is uh, on netflix is a secret magic control agency i hope uh, you guys it's great for kids and the grown-ups there's a lot of funny stuff in it uh i've got that fun little role at the end but my wife is really good in it uh, uh i would love it if people sought out gokudo swordsman extraordinaire i'd love it if they sought out Genshigan and I'm really proud of an animated film from Chile called the star maker where I am the voice of robot 19 unit 19. It's a wonderful CGI film about a little boy who looks in the sky from his little planet and sees that the stars are going out. So he gets on his rocket sled and he goes to the place where they make the star so he can save the stars. And along the way he stops at an abandoned asteroid rest stop where he rescues an abandoned uh, robot puts it back into and it's me and uh i'm a hospitality robot so i'm always projecting commercials at the most inappropriate moment and <laughs> commercials too it's probably That's... my favorite animation voice performance called the now, star- what's that one called the star maker directed by esteban echevarria star maker all right i'll have to star look Maker's that really one up as well i'm gonna be busy yeah well um, beans guys that's great that you guys are doing this yeah well like i said uh we can't thank you enough uh and that is it i wrap up episode 105 with bill timoney um as always guys check out our show notes for all of our links to all of our pages uh but we hope you enjoyed hearing bill's stories as much as we have we truly have uh thank you for listening to the disney guys uncensored after careful consideration i've decided not to endorse your park 